Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, where I am still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, and you are listening to this perhaps on a Thursday because every Thursday during this college football season. Matt Green and I, fellow University of North Georgia alumni Matt Green, that is, will be joining me twice a week to talk all things college football. Matt Green, how are you doing, sir? Good evening, sir. I am uh, I'm excellent. Just uh, glad to be back talking ball. Talking ball, he says. Talking talk. ball. Yes, um, sir. Have you been able to dive into the new season of The Circle on Netflix yet? <laughs> I don't even know what that is. <laughs> What is that? It's uh, so the the girlfriend got me into it a few months back, but it was the old season. But it's a show where it's a reality show. I'm trying to think of how I can how I can phrase this because it's such a weird, different kind of show where it's just like these people go into the this one apartment complex and they don't get to see each other and they have to if you make it through and you get voted out potentially week after week, but if you're the last person standing the most people vote for you you become you're the most popular person in the apartment complex then you win a hundred thousand dollars but they can't see you all you can do is text in the group uh text thing that's what the circle is so the whole point of the game is to be in the circle and have the most amount of friends so you have to like you got to maneuver around you got to set up alliances you got to do all this stuff but um yeah so some people come in as catfishes some people come in as themselves you get to choose but it's a, it's a whole hit, man. I'm surprised you, wow. you're not all the way in on this. You know what I did watch? Mm-hmm. Oh, what was it called? That show where they – it's on Netflix where you're like not allowed to have sex. You're not allowed to masturbate or whatever. Too like too hot to handle or something. That oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You heard, have you seen this? Oh, yeah. I, the girlfriend's oh, all about all this. I've, <laughs> I've gone through them all. Oh, man. When I'm not watching sports show. now, Matt, or I'm not reading, or I'm not doing, like, the normal day-to-day job stuff, not doing graduate school homework, it's it's reality television, essentially. So, yeah, I, I've, I've watched it. Yeah, I feel like uh, the Braves season is for, like, you know, you keep the Braves on the background, but you don't really tune in religiously to, like, all 162 games, you know? So it's like, yeah, you know... The uh, the missus wants to watch something on TV, you know. You, you you can you can humor, but then once once fall once football season hits, it's like nah, we're it's it's a sports household for sure. Oh, okay. Matt Green laying down the law. Okay. I'm so, saying like mm-hmm. it's a that's a it's a small time of the year. It's like three months out of the year, you know. So that's actually how a- I explained it to to my girlfriend of just being like, because I am basically going to every uh, going to every high school football game every Friday. So like that is something I very much love and I missed it so much last year. Um, and then going to the pit Tennessee game on Saturday and just like, I, I this is just going to be my life for the next four months. It's not the whole year, but it's a limited amount of time. Like there's 10, 11 high school games, 12 college games, but there's only six here in Tennessee. You gotta, you gotta make the most of it. Cause just like that, it'll be gone. Right. Yeah. I mean, you talk 52 weeks a year. Mm-hmm. And we got 13 Saturdays of college football, like before the postseason. But mm. but yeah, you gotta uh, you gotta take it all in. Absolutely. Um, don't forget, folks. You can follow Matt on Twitter at Matt underscore W underscore Green. Follow myself at Chase Double underscore Thomas. Go check out ChaseThomasPodcast dot com today. Uh, subscribe to the newsletter that goes out every day on SportsRenaissanceMatt dot Substack dot com. 
uh, support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash chase Thomas writer. And then of course, leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple podcasts. If you indeed love listening to Matt and I talk all things college football twice a week during the college football season. Uh, Matt, we have some, some news and notes we got to get to before we get into this week's pick Um, Muhammad Ibrahim is uh, out for the year for Minnesota. Brutal Did blow. Did announce what it was? I never heard. It definitely looked like an Achilles live. Like you could see that that calf kind of like vibrate, you know, how it does when yeah. someone tears their Achilles. But I never heard an actual diagnosis. Wasn't but... that KD who's vibrated? Like they did the close-up and you could see the way he felt. Like I think it was Kevin Probably, Durant. It looks like a, yeah, it looks like just a rubber band just yes. snaps up into the calf. Because Kobe, yeah. you didn't see it. I, I could be wrong, but I feel like we didn't see Kobe. I just remember Kobe pulling it up to shoot two free throws and then walking Kobe, out. Kobe, yeah, shot damn free throws afterwards. Like, that's crazy. Um, But, yeah, no, I, I watched the press conference and PJ Flex answer about it, and he just said he's out for the year with a lower leg injury. So I don't think he ever – he said he had surgery, though, already. But if it is Achilles, that's a, that's a brutal one because he is I, – I also just don't know – can he come back for another year? Will he have another year of eligibility? I'm not sure. I need to pull that up. But um, I mean, he definitely would if he only played one game, you know. But I would imagine, you know, he's well, one of the best running backs in the country. You might as yeah. well start rehabbing while you're getting paid. Yeah, I just. Uh, but he could definitely. It's obviously going to hurt his draft stock. That's just brutal, man. He he's a workhorse, and he was big in that Ohio State opener. But he's gone. He is out for the year. So Tanner Morgan, more pressure on his shoulders for the Golden Gophers. Um, multiple people tell football scoop Matt Green that Vanderbilt intends to lean on Joey Lynch for a greater role in its offense with Lynch presently the team's quarterbacks coach and passing game coordinator uh, apparently I think he called plays and it was like a miscommunication as to who was calling plays on Saturday and their loss 23-3 to noted in-state powerhouse the East Tennessee State Buccaneers um what do you what do you make of this and already some weirdness going on with the Vanderbilt offense under Clark Lee? I mean, I don't really make anything of it except for it. Maybe that makes a little more sense on why you just got blown out by East Tennessee State. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, you can uh, you can talk it up all you want, but you know, even if it does make a huge impact, a positive impact, what is Vanderbilt a three win team now instead of a two win team like? I'm I'm not I don't think it's gonna make too big of a difference. Um Pete Thamel just tweeted out not too long ago. Did you see this? What's up? Source. A Big Twelve president's call is scheduled for Friday morning to formally vote in UCF, Cincinnati, Houston, and BYU into the league. So it's gonna be official as of Friday, it looks like. I like it. It's um you know, it's just, it's just weird in terms of geography, but you know that that went out the window a long time ago in college football. So yeah, it'll it'll definitely strengthen the uh, the Big Twelve, but it you know the Big Twelve is just going to look unrecognizable when you have BYU versus TCU in a in a Big Twelve conference game or something. Sucks for Gus Malzahn though, right? Because Gus is like, I left Auburn and didn't take Tennessee or didn't want any of these other big jobs because I wanted to just go enjoy my retirement, not compete for national titles anymore. Just go have fun with the Dylan Gabriels of the world and 
not do this. I don't want to go big game hunting anymore. Like, what what am I doing here? Um, well, see, I don't I don't know about that. I think it's just the SEC. Like, just yeah. staying out of the SEC in general. It's like um, every conference is more winnable than the SEC when you're one of those, you know, bottom half teams or at least, you know, not upper echelon teams. So I think this, if anything, it, it just kind of builds even more uh, credibility to, to Central Florida and, and the Cincinnati's of the world. So, you know, I, I, I think this is – you know, it definitely can't be a bad thing. I would just go ahead and add two more. Just add Memphis and USF too. Like USF, did you see they just announced that they are getting their indoor practice facility? So that's a big, big thing for them because that's been holding up a lot of progress to the Bulls. And that was something that I had heard that Jeff Scott's pushing a lot. So, um, Does anyone want USF though? I, do they not feel like a pack to our Big 12 team? Do you not remember the Matt Grothy era? And then... <laughs> Like, who doesn't remember the Matt Grothy era? I will say 100% they do not feel like a Big 12 team, but neither do Cincinnati. Charlie Strong came from there. Charlie Strong, Willie Taggart. Who was the quarterback um, a couple years ago who just ran for a billion yards every season? Oh, was it Flowers? Yes. Yes. What was his first name? Uh, Quentin Flowers. Yeah, okay. That is the most Big 12 offense ever. Sure. Yeah, but seven, nothing about Tampa says Big 12 to me. Oh, I'm sorry. Does I'm Orlando old, say something? old-fashioned that way. No, that doesn't seem like Big 12 either. But Cincinnati, at have, Ohio? At least those teams have the, the Provo, Utah programs. At least those teams have the respectable football programs at the Big 12 once. You know, like South Florida isn't good at anything. Like, <laughs> sorry, yeah, to, sorry to alienate our listeners down in Tampa, but uh, yeah, I don't think they do much for the Big 12. Randy Etzel, do you remember how we talked last week that it was gonna he like they came to an agreement at UConn and that was it, but they were gonna let him finish out the season. Um, Matt Green, he is not finishing out the season, and Randy Etzel is now gone from the university. Yeah, that of UConn. was crazy. It was just, you know what? If you're gonna go and pack it in at the end, <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you just go ahead and leave it? <laughs> UConn, that, that's a that's an uphill battle that uh, UConn's got for sure. I don't even who would Maybe want the Big that job. Would say UConn. No. Who wants that job? Nobody. Maybe Dan Orvlosky. Maybe he'll take the job. Why? He's got a much better gig on ESPN. He's got a way better gig. I don't want to try and resurrect UConn football. No, definitely not. I mean, they're actually a sleeper Big 12 team. Why not? Just for the basketball? Honestly, that would be the only thing that that got him in there, but... uh... But then that would mess up their whole Big East basketball. Because that's like one of the confusing things. We still have the Big well, East in college basketball. They're the American in, in college basketball, though. Are No, they're not. Are they? Aren't they? No. Because the Big East, none of those schools play play uh, football. Yeah, but they're in Big East. Like, but no, he's they're in the Big East for basketball. Uh, I'm going to look that up. I don't, think, I don't think so. I think the last several years, I think they've been um, in the American. Incorrect. Am yeah, I wrong? Yeah, see? They're in the Big East. I can't believe you had me doubting this. Oh, see, last year was their first year in the Big East. Yeah, I knew they were in the Big East last year. I was like, I'm saying from 2013 to 2020, they were in the AAC. Okay. So they were in there. Okay, I'm not going crazy. I was like, I was pretty sure they weren't in the Big East. So I guess they just gave up on being football relevant. They're like, look, we need to be back in the Big East. (laughs) This is like literally all we had. I mean, they're not wrong. That is the right strategy. Man, Maybe staying just, independent is good for Big them. East days, man. That's when college basketball is at its best. Like it was always the first tournament tournament to start because the conference was so huge. It started on like Monday of t- 
turn uh, conference championship week in Madison Square Garden. Now you got Creighton. Like no disrespect to Creighton, they're a quality basketball program. But like, man, that doesn't that doesn't hit like the Georgetown and Syracuse from back in the day. No. Um, AP poll movement. Your Georgia Bulldogs jump to number two, right behind Alabama. What do you make of the new Associated Press poll that is out this week? Yeah, I thought it only made sense. You know, I think Ohio State, Ohio State was fine. Oklahoma looked very unimpressive. So with Georgia having a, a win over Clemson, it made sense for them to jump to number two. Um, it's kind of surprised at how many first place votes they got, but. Um, yeah, I think the the biggest thing that surprised me from the AP poll was was Auburn getting in there. I was I felt like the LSU thing seemed like an overreaction for them to drop all the way out of the top uh, twenty five. Like I think UCLA is a, a quality team. I could see like I definitely still think LSU is a better team than Auburn. But it's like what did we learn from a sixty to ten win over Akron? Like oh okay, you you beat Akron by fifty points. You're clearly a top twenty five team, right? Like I don't. That that seemed kind of strange to me, but um, but yeah, I think uh, I think it only made sense for for Georgia to be up there too. Ole Miss behind Virginia Tech is uh, certainly a choice. Yeah, and I guess they're only the, yeah. That's another good point. They're only at th- that low just because of the preseason ranking, right? Like I think with how they played on Monday, I think I think most people would have them inside the top fifteen or so. I would have them in my top 15 right now. Well, let's get into it. Uh, what did you make? Because we recorded, uh, obviously, our recap show uh, before that Ole Miss-Louisville game. But you know what was great about this game, Matt? You know what warmed my heart? I just know you're a big Matt Corral guy. Well, I mean, I love Matt Corral. Love me some lane train. Love the love the whole situation in in, uh, in Oxford. Well, what, uh, what, great what, what uniforms. Elite uniforms. At, Gotta uh, love those powder blues. Mm-hmm. They should just just make that your permanent color. Honestly, at this point, there's enough navy and red out there. There's nothing really unique about that. Like, get that powder blue. Make okay. that your identity. There you go. Red and powder blue. I'm not against it. Um, no, I, it's that the attendance sucked, which warmed my heart, and I was so glad to see that this bombed attendance wise. Uh, <laughs> putting this game on a Monday. When you had Oxford, you could have just played this in Louisville or Oxford. You could have put this on a... Guess when it would have been full? Guess guess when? If it was at one of these two universities, people would have yeah, packed yeah. one of these two buildings. Do you know what they're not going to do from Louisville? They're not going to travel to Atlanta on a Monday and then drive it. What? Yeah, maybe on a Sunday when you got Labor Day, you know, the next Monday off. A lot of people do at least. But yeah, on a Monday night, like, I feel like these have been duds you know several years in a row yes like it's just kind of the the saturday chick-fil-a kickoff game is always a sexy matchup but this monday one they followed up with is always like you know just the the eighth best team in the acc versus the sixth best team in the sec it's just kind of like you said college football it's great because of the college atmospheres it was i mean i wasn't i wouldn't say i was happy that no one showed up to this game but no, it warmed my heart. I, I, I was very, very happy. And I, I just, I hope it continues. I hope people just never go to these games anymore. I hope it's a, a dumpster fire from here on out. It, let, let's just start off with the Monday. Get that out of here. Get that. Yeah. Nonsense if you're going to do it, it's got to be on a Saturday. Or just put it in a freaking college stadium. What are we doing? How do you look at that and then look at Florida State, Notre Dame and just be like, yeah, I think we, we nailed it. 
I think uh, we right, should. No, we need to play this game in Atlanta. Oxford, yeah. the Grove. That's uh, that's that's played out. Let's let's go play in uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. <sighs> Drives me nuts. It really, really grinds my gears. Matt Green. Um, any other strong takeaways from the actual on-the-field product? Um, Louisville. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to sound like a broken record because you know everyone is saying this after this game but the targeting man mm. like we just got to do something about the targeting it's not what anyone wants right it's not what the players want it's not what the fans want it's not what the coaches want like it's not good for anybody like in general the targeting rule is working you know like you're seeing guys kind of hesitate on giving those huge blows in the secondary you know maybe the uh, a pass goes off a receiver's fingertips or something. He goes up high for it and a safety, instead of just laying the wood, he just kind of, you know, lets him be. So I feel like it's working in that respect, but just the punishment just does not fit the crime, especially like, like these, these football players, like these are some of the best athletes like in the world. Like sometimes they miss them completely when they're trying to tackle them. Right. Like these guys are insanely athletic. So Sometimes they miss them, and now you're you're penalizing for hitting them in the wrong spot, or the way these uh, receivers, offensive players, will will brace for contact and lower their head, and then what was a hit to the midsection is now a helmet to helmet hit. So the one in on Corral, like that was that was a hard hit. Like I can understand that one, but at the same time, Matt Corral he slid really late on that, and you're you're punishing. Like, did you see that? Uh, that video of Tom Brady talking about uh, recently talking about like they, they punish the defense for the offensive mistakes. Did you ever see that video? I did not. Was, oh, I thought it was so perfect because he was just talking about just how, you know, a bad throw or something leaves a receiver out to dry and then he gets hit hard and now you're punishing the defense. You know, I, I feel like there's just so much of that, but the, the, you know, that could have been a 15 yard penalty, whatever you're, it's, it's on a quarterback, like, you know, whatever, but, guys just shouldn't be getting ejected for these hits. And the one on the running back where he just stuck him coming right up the middle, it's like, that's just a normal football play. And now this guy's ejected. Like we just, we got to do something about this. Like targeting one, targeting two, you know, one's a 15 yard penalty. One's an ejection. Like how many of these targeting plays have you seen that you're just like, wow, that is uncalled for. This guy needs to be out of the game. Like, you eject someone from the game for, like, hitting someone in the nuts or something, you know? Like, something that's just dirty. Like, this is, there's no place for that in the sport, right? Not just for doing your job, but just hitting a guy a, a couple inches higher than what would have been the safest way to hit him. Like, you just you can't expect a defender to, to be able to have that much body control. I agree. I don't think they're going to clean it up, though. I don't think they care. And I know that they're just not going to put in the work to to clean it up um greg sankey will do something about it as soon as he's commissioner of college football that's what we need (laughs) that's what uh, college football needs that man in charge um matt we are going to take a quick break and then it's time for week two we're already in week two of our college football pick them we'll be back after this All right, we are back on the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still joined by my good friend, fellow University of North Georgia alumni himself, Matt Green. Matt, um, let's start. Game of the week. I am so excited for this rivalry matchup between the two Iowa powerhouses. 
Matt, you know I love me some Hawkeye. You know I, I love the Hawkeyes. You know I love the Cyclones. I've been trying to talk myself into the Cyclones. It's a playoff team. The Iowa Hawkeyes might be a playoff team. This is a playoff shifting matchup, sir. This is a playoff defining matchup. Who is going to still be alive in the two Iowa schools in the college football playoff race? Oh boy. I am excited to talk about this one and I have gone back and forth and I might not even make up my mind until you break down your perspective on Iowa, Iowa state. How do you see this going, Matt? I hear you there, man. I feel like I just went back and forth with this game. Um, so this is a four thirty ABC kickoff in Ames. Iowa state is a four point favorite at home. This is the first time these two teams have ever been ranked. Uh, both been ranked when playing each other, and they're both in the top ten right now. So stakes had never been higher for the uh, for the battle of the Cyhawk. So I'm just looking at this matchup, like it's hard not you know we don't want to put too much stock in, into what happened in Week One. You know I think Iowa they had a dominant win over Indiana, but you know the turnovers also make it look a little more dominant than it than I think it really was, and then. Iowa State, I mean, you look at just how they played against Northern Iowa, like 16 to 10, like Brock Purdy was nothing amazing. I was just more, more important than anything, just Brees Hall having 23 carries for 69 yards against Northern Iowa. Like that's just, I don't know how that's possible for one of the best running backs in college football. So I was going back and forth. It's, it's, it's hard for me to not take the home team. But I feel like Iowa's the better team. I feel like if if Northern Iowa is able to have success shutting down Iowa State's running game, then I don't feel like there's any chance that they run the ball with consistency versus Iowa. Like, I know it's going to be, you know, huge atmosphere. I'm sure they were kind of sleeping on Northern Iowa a little bit. But, um, you know, I, I like I said, I went back and forth. I think Iowa, Iowa's won five straight in this series, and they're currently on a seven-game winning streak, which is like maybe the second longest winning streak in college football right now. So uh, I, I got to go with the Hawkeyes. I think I like them go on the road, uh, not only to, you know, cover the – not only with the points, I like them to win outright. You like who to win outright? Iowa. Oh, okay. Whew. Um this is tough because <laughs> I believe in Iowa's defense more than I believe in Iowa State's, but Iowa State's defense was dominant. I think this is going to be a low-scoring, just very dubious affair. I've gone back and forth on this where I'm like, what if it's like 13 to 10 through the fourth? Who do I trust more? And I go back and forth, back and forth. I don't trust Spencer Petrus. That's something I cannot shake is Brock Purdy was not great last week, but he also didn't cost him the game. He didn't throw any picks. He was still super efficient, completed a lot of passes. He's shown more in the past than Mr. Petrus. Like, Petrus was 13 of 27 against IU for 145 yards last week. Um, he didn't challenge anything downfield. Like, there was no downfield threat. Um, I think the the running situation on both sides is going to be a wash because you have Brees Hall in, uh, on the Cyclones, and you have... Uh, Goodson, who just big play threat, um, North Georgia alumni, Mr. Goodson, um, or North Gwinnett, North Gwinnett, excuse me, uh, for the Hawkeyes. I just, I don't trust Petrus. That is something I come back to over and over again, where I'm like, if I just liked him a little bit more in this game, I think I would go, go Iowa on the road. 
but because I don't trust him enough and I'm concerned that he is going to make a dumb play, a dumb pass, something like that, that's just going to cost Iowa this this ball game. So I'm going to say Iowa State wins and Iowa State covers because I don't I don't trust Petrus in this spot. That's fair, and that's that's kind of one of the things I kept going back to. Like, ah, do I trust? And it's on the road too. This is a big time environment, but um, yeah, it'll it'll be an interesting one. Um, but uh, you got anything else for that for that game? You good? I'm good there. Where are we All going right. next? So moving on, we got Big Noon, which this is games honestly a crime being at noon on Fox, but uh, we got Oregon at a wait. No, State. let me stop you right there. Not a crime. It's a great thing. Fox is the best. When it comes to producing college football, like their show at that 12 noon spot, it's great. It's going to be Gus and Joel Clatt, right? No, I'm sure it will be, but I mean, their, their crew is great and everything, but this, the production's phenomenal. You look at the, you look at the, the matchups this week. Like this is the best game of the week. Like, I mean, Iowa, Iowa state's Ooh, I don't too. know about that. I don't think this is the best matchup. Is, I don't know if I agree with a, that. This has got night game written all over it. That's all I'm saying. Like, I just, I like the atmosphere of a night game. Well, we'll so. get into the night game because I agree Oregon with you there. Cross country. Like, this is like 9 a.m. local time for them, you know? Like, I don't know. It's just, it's unfortunate that it's at noon. I, hey, as a, as a diehard college football fan that's going to be, you know, planted in my couch in front of the TV all day, I'm all about having this game at noon, but... It just it doesn't feel like it's doing it justice for the atmosphere. That's a that's all I mean. But, I think you're giving the Anthony Brown led Oregon Ducks too much credit here. They should have lost to Fresno last week. No, that's fair. This is a boat race. Can I go ahead and lock in or uh, Ohio State to cover and win big? Can I just go ahead and lock that in yeah, right now? Without a doubt. Yeah, and I think I mean I could see just Anthony Brown like what Minnesota did to Ohio State on the ground. Like I could see Oregon, you know, scoring some points on Ohio State, but I just can't see Oregon getting enough. Thibodeau's stop out, right? This thing. I but I think they're saying he's day to day, but I would imagine he's out. But um, but yeah, I like you said, like I could see them you know, scoring some points in Ohio State because I wasn't impressed with Ohio State's defense last week. But with that said, they're not going to get enough stops in Ohio State. And yeah, I think Ohio State's easily going to win this by 14. Ohio State's getting 14. Against... Yeah, I didn't say that. Yeah, Ohio State's the 14 point favorite. Well, no, what I'm saying, like, is that not amazing? Ohio State's getting 14 in a big primetime matchup against a team that could, people have said could be a playoff team. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's just with how Oregon looked last week. Like, Fresno yeah. outgained him in that game. And then, obviously, the Thibodeau injury, like, that's the best player on Oregon. Like, I wouldn't have been surprised if, you know, I don't know what the what the line was on this game, you know, five days ago, but I bet you it wasn't double digits at that point because we had higher expectations for Oregon. But after one week, you know, I, I definitely expect Ohio State to, to cruise in this one. Okay. And uh, moving forward, also at noon on ESPN2, we got South Carolina going on the road at East Carolina. And East Carolina, the Pirates, are a two-point favorite. Incredible. Explain to me how East Carolina is a favored in this game. Like, I know South Carolina is the world beater, but, like, ECU's had, like, six straight losing seasons. Like, this is not a good mid-major by any means. Like, I'm just... They didn't look good. They didn't look particularly good last week. So oh, I don't think they obviously. looked bad last week. I think there's a possibility that App State's like the second best group of five school in college football. No, that's po- that's definitely possible. But you know, South Carolina, they should be able to out athlete East Carolina. Like mm-hmm. 
So I, I think, you know, even even if uh, our boy, the grad assistant, what was it? Zeb was Nolan. Zeb Nolan, yeah. Even if he's running the show still, which I believe he is. He is. I, I expect South Carolina to, to win this game at, at the very least. Like, it might not be a blowout or anything, but I'm just shocked that East Carolina's favored. So, yeah, give me the Gamecocks. Give me East Carolina. Mm. To win and cover. So, East Carolina, this is coming from their 247 blog. I was, I was checking up on this because when you sent me this this uh, this line, <laughs> I almost fell out of my chair. Um, this is this is like uh, grounds for relegation in Premier League where if there's an SEC school that is a dog on the road against East Carolina, they're relegated. Like that means the program, you're kicked out of the SEC for a while. You lose to East Tennessee State. Guess what? You're relegated. We're we're booting you for a little bit. We're, we're bringing in somebody else because you got to earn your way back in. I think South Carolina being a being a dog to the Pirates. No offense to the Pirate faithful. Great uniforms, great look, like it. Great premier premier college baseball program. Um, this is a joke that South Carolina is not favored here. Um, but as I was saying with ECU, this is from Two Four Seven Sports quote. There have been some disappointing games over the last few years, including blowout losses to NC State 34-6, Navy 42-10, and South Florida 45-20 in year one. ECU bounced back with comfortable wins against FCS teams after the losses to the Wolfpack and Midshipmen that were mentioned before. And after everyone wrote the 2019 team off after losing to USF at home, the last team mentioned there, the Pirates had number 17 Cincinnati on the ropes the following week and lost in a 46-43 slugfest. They respond well to losing to good teams like App State on the road or just a good team out of the gate. Give me the Pirates. That's what you're basing this on? 2019? Yeah. Uh, we'll see. I um, Trust me, I'm not, I'm not confident at all in South Carolina as a football team, but uh, I just they, they got to be better than East Carolina, right? I, no, they don't. Good. Why do we think that? They don't have to be, but I'm going with them. Okay. And then uh, our other noon game on ESPN, going up to Rocky Top. Wait, is this on ESPN or SEC this Network? Is ESPN. This yeah. is in ESPN. Oh yeah. The oh. Noon, the noon slate, you know, you kind of usually have some limited options. I was going to say because I'm going to be here. I'm just surprised we're getting. I thought we were going to be on the network. I didn't think that this was going to be on ESPN. Oh yeah. Big time, mm. big time non-conference game. Although this year, there's some of the best non-conference matchups I feel like I can remember in a long time. Like with just kind of like you know, corresponding teams, right? Like the you got Georgia and Clemson, but you got like Auburn, Penn State. This one, Penn, Pitt, uh, Tennessee. Like there's just a lot of like solid like things because like, we never learn anything like we we hype up these bowl games because there's these matchups you never see but now the bowl games don't mean anything so it's just tough to have these these conferences that never play each other but we're constantly comparing them it's nice to have a few kind of corresponding matchups this year like we do um but yeah so we got tennessee at home versus Pitt, and they are a three and a half point dog at home and I know you want me to make this my home dog of the week. I don't. And I just I, like Kenny Pickett isn't is nothing amazing, right? He's, what, he's been there forever. Year, fifth year senior, sixth year senior. He started since he was a freshman. 
do you know i swear i i, I don't have like research i don't have like data on this but he had to have set a record last year 145 rushing yards and eight rushing touchdowns like <laughs> that has to be the most the least amount of yards for someone who's ever had eight rushing touchdowns in a season but um i just i wasn't i wasn't like thrilled with what i saw in joe milton last week mm. uh i just i went back and forth on this one too this was a tough one for me but i think i think i'm gonna go pit going on the road in neyland neyland or neyland what do you say neyland okay i know it's a highly debated issue yeah highly debated topic but yeah give me pit um so they're one and one all time against each other uh dating back to when hypo was at ucf um they talked about it uh when you were listening to both press conferences where both coaches were like we are very familiar with each other um even though the personnel is a little bit different we know what both coaches like to do we know our styles um Milton struggled through the air. I think Pitt is going to cause some some bad turnovers in this game. I think this game's going to be ugly. I don't think you're going to want to watch this game back after it's all said and done. I think it's going to be a lot more low scoring than people think. I think it's just going to be a lot of yards and not a lot of points, a lot of dumb stuff in the red zone for both both teams. I saw a lot about this defense, though. We're, we're still waiting on word about Byron Young. Uh, Barron was really good off the edge last week. I'm excited about him. Elijah Simmons was good. Theo Jackson's a star. Um, I really like him out um, in the secondary. Jawan Mitchell has become the leader of this linebacking core. Like, I think the defense is impressing me a lot more than I thought it would be at this point. Tim Banks has got a good thing going here. So the defense is better than I expected, and we have the advantage on offense, and Tion Evans and Jabari Spall are going to be going to be good. And um, we have our, our four or five guys. Callaway will be back this week. I think it's just more of like Vegas not knowing what uh, what Tennessee is going to be yet under Hypel and Pitt's more of a known quantity in your uh, a thousand of Pat Narduzzi there. So give me Tennessee uh, to win and obviously cover because I'm taking them out right. Excited for this one in person. I think this is going to be uncomfortable for a lot of Tennessee fans. It's going to be my guess. People are going to get antsy. I'm sure it should be. A, and Pitt, like just it's not the brand of of some other school so i don't know if anyone i don't know if everyone's appreciating like how how evenly matched this this game will be but um but yeah i think it i think it should be a good one for sure i I went back and forth on it have you mapped out which uh which um georgia games you're gonna go to this year i haven't actually just because the home schedule is is so weak for georgia this year so you know i i was looking at going to the cocktail party this year but you know are you gonna not go to you have to go to sanford at one point i got to yeah so i haven't figured out which game i'm gonna go to but um you know we're living like 30 minutes from athens now yeah there's no excuse we'll definitely uh we'll definitely make it up to a game for sure okay um um, moving on we got um at seven o'clock on espnu we got App State at Miami, and I feel like a lot of people are going to pick App State. Uh, Miami's a seven-and-a-half-point favorite at home. I think a lot of people are going to pick App State after seeing what Alabama did to Miami. But I just feel like Alabama's not going to define what Miami is. You know, like, did we expect Miami to beat Alabama? Like, I don't think anyone expected that. So, you know, we saw Ohio State get blasted by four touchdowns in the national championship, and they were still a damn good team. So I think a lot of people are going to overreact to that week one showing that Miami had. But um, but I like I like the Hurricanes to get this done and cover. I agree. Um, I think Miami wins, but I disagree 
on whether or not they cover. I think App State covers. I think um, did they play two years ago? Was App State Miami two years ago? That was I think it was a few years more than that when they went at App State. Yes. Yeah, I think Mark Richt was still there. Like yes, and that was super close, was it not? No, I think I think Miami routed them that one because I think a lot of people were expect, mm. like picking the upset because it was at App State and everything. But um, I'm pretty sure Miami like blasted them in that one. I'll, I'll, uh, they did I'll forty-five that. to ten. Okay. Hmm. But yeah, so you're going uh, but, Miami to win, but App State to cover. That was man largest. Okay, sorry, I just got an S stat thing with Rick there. Um, I am going to take. I don't know. App State looks good thus far, and I like a lot of their guys. I, I think what you said is true though. Where I think people are reacting Miami, but I also think Miami has some real problems. Uh, get, like if App State's the number two group of five school, I think that's enough to, to be a thorn in the side of the Canes this weekend. Um, this is their Super Bowl, to to make, no, uh, to make uh, Miami's life living hell tonight. Give me. Miami to win, but absolutely to cover final answer. Okay. And then uh, moving forward, this is a game that, uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure, like, necessarily how how intriguing of a matchup it is, but just the brands, it's just nice to see these two teams playing again. We got Texas at Arkansas, and Arkansas is a six-point home dog. Seven o'clock night game, ESPN. I, um, I think I've been, you know... On the record, really, with, with how I feel about Arkansas, everyone just likes Sam Pittman, and it felt like they made huge strides, but I think they're still just so far away from being a good football team. I was really impressed with uh, with Texas last week. I mean, not, maybe not really impressed, but they played a much better opponent than Arkansas did. Like, Arkansas messed around with Rice. Like, Texas is a significantly better team than Rice, so I like Texas to win this outright. And cover. Mm. I like Hudson Card a lot. Watching that back, what's interesting about Texas is I believe in their offense a lot more than their defense. I think their defense might actually be pretty bad this year. Um, so they're going to be in some shootouts. It's going to limit how high they can go in the Big 12. But I think with Arkansas, it's not going to be a problem. Um, Arkansas is a work in progress offensively. And I think this is going to be one where Texas might win by more than people might expect i think this might be a rough year for for year two and sam Pittman and the the hogs give me the horns to win and cover yeah i could definitely see that um and then this is another one of those non-conference matchups i was talking about nc state at mississippi state i think this is a uh just two i think nc state is what what would you say like the fourth fifth best team in the acc maybe maybe better i would say second or third maybe Maybe they might be actually, but it's 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 kind of hard to know what to make of the ACC after that after that first week of the season. But um, I wish I had some sort of graphic, some sort of you know sound effect to ring. But uh, this is my home dog of the week, right? Ooh. Here. Mississippi State two and a half point dog to NC State. I think you know they did not look good, and they just had to had to escape by the skin of their teeth to be Louisiana Tech last week. But, you know, I think Will Rogers was still he was still pretty efficient in that game. And um I like I like the cowbells. I like the atmosphere, night game in Starkville. I uh I like Mississippi State. Mm. We disagree. We disagree because I like NC State here. NC State's gonna be good. I think they're a nine, ten win team this year. 
mm. as a whole. I think Mississippi State, it, there was some sloppiness. Like you said, Will Rogers bounced back though through a bunch in that game. Um, but I like Leary more than Rogers. I like I like this NC State Wolfpack team. I like the vibe with them. It seems like their kind of year, where North Carolina had their year last year. This is kind of shaping up for the ACC to open up for the Wolfpack with Dave Doran. Um, this is a big win for them. This is a big, big game for them to prove who they are uh, this season. Give me the Wolfpack to win and cover. Man, the ACC is going to – they're going to be glued to this one. Yeah. <laughs> like, they, they are desperately going to want NC State to to get a, get this win and try to change some of the narratives that are out there about this conference. But um, Before we on, move on to the next one, can I get – because it's not on our list. Can I just mention this? Go ahead. Do you know who Ed Orgeron's playing against this weekend? Um, I'm not sure I do. McNeese State. Why am I making note that he's playing McNeese State this weekend? I don't know. Do they also wear sissy blue? No, they basically have the same. <laughs> they look like Delaware blue hens almost. Okay. Um, but why? Yeah, why is this significant? Do you know who the quarterback of McNeese State is? I don't. I'll give you a hint. His name's Cody. Cody. Give me another hint. What's his last name? This might break it for you. Cody Orgeron. It's his son. He's playing against his son this weekend. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Can you do that? Is that not like what? (laughs) I I would maybe recuse. recuse, uh, How do you say this? uh, Recuse? Is it recuse? Yeah. Recuse myself from uh from this game yeah that's uh, that's kind of crazy but uh like how do you get in the locker room you're like i need you guys to hurt my son i want you to get (laughs) at the quarterback i want you to punish him like what yeah that is kind of crazy especially with how bad lsu like desperately needs like yeah they need to bury them like yeah they need to hang 50 on make me stay just to make people feel a little bit better it's gonna be crazy i just i saw that and i was like what in the world Uh, i don't know that's that's uncomfortable so we'll see we'll see what happens here um but anyway next game i can't remember any many like many instances of a coach i was gonna say has that ever happened i mean i'm sure it has at some point but yeah I'm, i'm struggling to think of an example but uh moving on sec network 730 this is a this is a low key exciting one for me because I feel like this is like a kind of a crossroads kind of stepping stone matchup Missouri and Kentucky. I feel like this game is really going to go a long way and defining either of these teams season. Like if either of these teams think they can be the third or maybe even second best team in the sec East, I know a lot of people have, you know, talked about this being a down year for Florida and maybe Kentucky can, can rise up and be the second best team in the East. If they're going to do it, like you got to start with a win over one of these teams. And Kentucky hosts Missouri. They are a uh, five-point favorite at home. And just watching Missouri last week, I was just very unimpressed. Like they just really played. Who was it they played? Was it UL Monroe is who Kentucky played? Who did Missouri play? But I was just I was very unimpressed with with how Missouri just kind of like let them stay in the game with central Michigan last week, 34, 24, just very uninspiring. I think Wando Robinson, you know, this new look Kentucky offense. I think, you know, they looked very good last week just against UL Monroe. But I think, uh, you know, at home, I, I think, I think I like Kentucky to, uh, to win this one. Maybe by, I almost want to say multiple scores, but I definitely like them to win by more than five. So give me, give me Kentucky. 
We agree. I like Kentucky here in the points um, for the reasons you mentioned with Mizzou last week, but also I just love what I've seen from this Kentucky offense with Rodriguez, with uh, Wondell Robinson, with Levis. Most amount of upside at quarterback they've had there in a long time. Um, Kentucky's going to be good. I think this is a... They, they have a strong possibility of being... This is like the battle for Tier 2 in the East, right? Whoever comes out yeah, of this... Yeah, that's select, what I mean. Yeah. I, I think not catch you off. Go ahead. No, no, no. I just think that this is like the Tier 2 battle of like whoever wins this game and if they win it comfortably, then we like we know who Georgia's biggest test is out of the other the other teams in the SEC. Yeah, it feels like I think both of these teams were seven and a half wins in the over-under, and I mm. think this game is going to go a long way in determining if either of those teams gets gets that over. So... Lock it in, both going with the Wildcats. And then this one, this is a matchup that really feels a lot worse. This sucks. Can we flex this out of here? Can we flex this off my television? I hate that I have to watch this game. Yeah, so the game you're referring to, 8 o'clock, ABC, like prime time. Bell's out for the season. Yeah, and if you're going to have LSU drop out of the top 25, like how does Washington not drop out of the top 25? Oh, actually, I think they did. I think we're, the rankings on our sheet are out of date. So Washington did drop, drop out of the top 25. But, yeah, we got Washington at Michigan. Michigan is a six-point favorite at home. It's like I'm just not really impressed with either of these teams. But And I'm sure Washington is not as bad as they look. Like you just turn over the ball. Like you turn the ball over three times, like you can lose to anybody. So I feel like Washington was not as bad as they look, but at the same time, you know, in the big house, if, if you're going to lose to – shoot, who was it again they lost to? I even forgot. Montana. Put Montana. some respect on the Grizz. That's true. You're going to lose to Montana. I, I, can't, I can't pick you to go into the, into the big house and beat Michigan. Not that the big house means what it once did, but give me Michigan – I'm tempted to just take Michigan to win, but Washington to keep it close. But no, give me Michigan to win and cover. What is it? What's the number? Six points. How did Michigan let Zach Charbonnet go? That's a good question. It's not like they had some sort of great running back, you know, that he was missing out carries to either. That dude's got Heisman potential um, this season and, and uh, Los Angeles. Um, Cade McNamara is fine. He's stable. Um, Dylan Morris looked awful. Awful last week for the Huskies. Donovan's offense, who has just been awful everywhere he's gone. This was like the biggest question going into the season with the Huskies. Um, was what this offense looked like with him. Um, it's bad. This offense is dreadful. 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 Give me the Wolverines to win and cover, but like... I hate that I'm going to watch a lot of this game. I hate it. Like I, I, I'm already angry that this game exists. Flex it I'll off. I'll tell my you life. right now, I am not going to be watching a lot of this game. We got with those other three seven o'clock. Like maybe I'll catch the fourth quarter with these other seven o'clock games being over. But with Texas, Arkansas, NC State, Mississippi State, and Missouri, Kentucky, like I'll be way more invested in all of those games. So, but yeah. What, so, what are you saying, Michigan to win and cover? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then moving on, go out to the Pac-12, 10 o'clock. I know this is uh, your favorite time of uh, time of the college football Saturday. We got Arizona hosting San Diego State, and Arizona is a one-point favorite. I um, I really, you know, not too 
obviously there's just not too much to get excited about when it comes to Arizona football. And um, for that reason, I'm going San Diego State. I'm more in on the over-under here, 46.5 points. Uh, pound the under here, folks. And also, how is it legal this game's happening? Because I'm looking at a 101-degree temperature for kickoff. It's a dry heat, though, <laughs> so it's fine. That's what I've been told. 101. Gunner Cruz looked okay, I guess, last week for Zona. Greg it can't Bell. be 101 at 10 p.m., though, right? Well, it's not 10 p.m. there. It's 7. Well, I mean, this will be a 10 p.m. kickoff, though. Not, right? for, like that... not for them. It's 7 oh, for oh, them. Oh, shoot. You're right. You're right. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair <laughs> enough. That's, that's fair. Time zones. That was a tricky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um... Yeah, I I like I think people are overreacting a little bit too much to what happened to San Diego State last week. I think they're a better team um, than Arizona right now, and I think Arizona is a long way to go. And I I think San Diego State's a better team. Give me the Aztecs to win outright. Right, go Brady Hoax. And then the last one we got the Holy War. Oh, I can't wait for this one. I am watching this first thing Sunday morning. It is going to be delightful tickets going as low as 97 dollars for utah byu charlie brewer some guy named romney it's gonna be great it's gonna be delightful i'm here for it neil powell eight receptions 126 yards two touchdowns last week this is gonna be must see i am like let's go sataki versus winningham who doesn't want this seven and a half point favorites for the utah utes no respect for the BYU Cougars playing at home in Provo at Lavelle Edwards Stadium. The house that Zach Wilson built, that Ty Detmer built, that so many <laughs> before him built. Who who amongst us doesn't believe in the Cougars coming out of this game with a victory at home in the Holy War? Who's betting on Charlie Brewer? Not this guy. Not this guy. Cougars to win and cover. I'm excited. There's a quarterback right now under center for the BYU Cougars that people don't know about because guess what? Zach Wilson was there. He's an all-timer. He's probably going to be the best quarterback in BYU history. Like he's going to be the best for a while. People people love him. Jaron Hall's awesome. Very for very different reasons. Jaron Hall was great last week. That dude is going to be a star also in this BYU system. This is his coming out party. Cougs win outright done how do you like that that is the kind of intensity and passion that you get on this edition of the chase Holmes podcast when it's all about the holy war who isn't ready for the holy war you know what i bet you have never done what i bet you have never gotten your iphone out gotten on twitter mm. and talked about byu beating utah because they haven't done it you know, maybe you, if you were quick to the game, maybe you did, but they haven't beaten Utah since 2009. Nine straight wins mm. for the Utes in this one. This is my Pac-12 South champ right here, Charlie Brewer. I think uh, I think the Utes get it done again. Ten How dare straight. you? Ten straight for the Utes. Give me Utah. How dare you? I can't I know, wait for I, this one. I know the Cougs are your squad, but. You know, I got to go with Utah. I just, last year would have been the best chance for BYU to beat Utah, for sure. Like, with Zach Wilson and everything. So, it's tough that they didn't get that matchup. But, you know, these teams have played every year, except for 2020 and, and 2014. And 
You know, well, they would have beaten them last year. That's the thing. They definitely. I think they would have, but I think Utah's got that middle edge over them. Like nine straight victories. Like that's that's something serious. And until BYU proves they can beat Utah, I'm taking the Utes. You're picking against BYU as the first game being in the Big 12. First game, they're coming off the high well, of joining not in the Big 12. Yeah, they'll be voted in Friday. Yeah, but they're they're still playing a. You know, you gotta you gotta give them the benefit of the doubt there. It's a Big 12. It's a Power Five so matchup. They just immediately become better <laughs> once they agree to go to the Big 12. Yeah, it's a Power Five matchup. People forget. People do forget, but yeah, give me the Utes. Mm, we disagree. I like it. So. Run it down for us, Matt Green. What do we have this week? All right, let's see. Um, in the first one, I got Iowa. You got Iowa State. Um, I got South Carolina. You got ECU. I got Pitt. You got Tennessee. Um, I got Miami, and you have Miami to win, but you had App State keeping it close. I got Mississippi State. You have NC State. And then, um, and then this last one, I have Utah, you have BYU. So several disagreements on the board this week. So uh, it'll be interesting. And where do we stand as a whole going into this week? Oh, man, really put me on the spot here. So let's see. Overall, so against the spread, I am 4-7-1 so far, and you are 4-7-1 as well. But overall, I am 8-4 to your 5-7. So... Mm. Well, it'll be some moving and some shaking going on this week. Okay, I like it. Matt, Friday Night Lights, our last favorite segment on this show. Are you going to be making it to DeCule on Friday? Always, man. Never miss a game. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. <laughs> um, I think Parview had... You said Parview played North Gwinnett last weekend, right? It did. Mm. Bulldogs Shame. took them down mm. just because they're the superior program. Okay, that's enough. That is enough. <laughs> Coach Godfrey, Your Jeffrey Ford's not walking through that door. All right, Caleb King, those glory days are over. That I don't know why you're trying to hurt me. I don't understand. Uh, you know I bleed blue and orange, but I also bleed maroon and silver because the Oak Ridge Wildcats go to Farragut this this Friday. I'll be in attendance for the Farragut Oak Ridge matchup. Two powerhouses, different different parts of East Tennessee, but uh, I'm ready to go. For, for the the navy and silver versus the maroon and silver. It's going to be good. I'm excited. Big, big time Friday night yeah. matchup. When I was um, younger playing AAU basketball, mm-hmm. we would go to the Asheville, North Carolina for the Great Smoky Shootout. Mm-hmm. And I think we were like 11, 12 years old. And this team from Oak Ridge, Tennessee, oh my God. It was like all of these dudes looked like they were like four years older than us. It was like the most insane environment i've ever been a part of like no fouls were called in this game like our parents were like heckling the refs so bad they end up calling the police like it was like the craziest thing ever so when i hear oak ridge that's like the first thing i think of was it the same oak ridge yeah it was oak ridge tennessee that's wild that's wild. Yeah, it was a it was a crazy it's a crazy uh, thing i remember one of the one of the brothers of one of my teammates yelled, your mother doesn't love you. And like the ref or something. And I guess that was the final straw. It was like, all right. They like blew the whistles. Like everyone get out of here. It was like, they tried to like get the parents to leave and just play without the parents. And the parents are just like, no, we see what's happening on this court. Like our kids are going to get beat up if we leave this gym. Like it was wild. Man. 
But yeah, that's a little, little AU basketball memory whenever I think of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. North Gwinnett. It just means more, not only in football, but in, in Little League basketball, too. Um, oh, yeah, Northeast Atlanta Hawks. That was the uh, that was our squad. We were the Gwinnett All-Stars in AAU. Mm, not a great name. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. I wasn't that impressed with Northeast Atlanta Hawks, either. The best one was, like, Inner Strength. I always liked that one. Um, I mean, there was a team called the DC Ice. I always thought that was... We had a Georgia you know, the Ice. Griffin, the Griffin Grasshoppers. I always thought that was a cool name. I don't know. Maybe it was just because that team was always... DeKalb so Jaguars was pretty cool. Okay. Mm, I'm trying to think of some other ones I remember. Georgia Stars, Atlanta Celtics. Yeah, those are... Uh, Atlanta Celtics, I actually had, like, one of the best games of my whole career against the Atlanta Celtics. Had, like, 18 or something, like... It was it was big time at in Decula's gym actually, the uh, the old like, stomping grounds for you. Yeah, like the old gym. I don't know if you remember that old Decula gym. No, but those old gyms. I feel like they just had better atmosphere. Now all the gyms and all the high schools all look the same. You they know? really do. Like, the the crowd isn't right on top of you. Like it was like one of those where like the like there's the court and then like you know five feet from the sideline is like a ten foot brick wall and then all the you know all the crowd is like above that it was just like down kind of like down a pit i feel like it was a it was a cool cool environment there you go matt green we can follow you on twitter at matt underscore w underscore green uh if you like listening to matt and i talk college football we do it twice a week during the college football season so stay tuned to this feed and you'll get all kinds of college football content on the chase thomas podcast during the college football season follow myself again at chase double underscore thomas chase thomas podcast.com sports renaissance band.substack.com more more guests to come on this edition of the podcast but don't forget all that good stuff folks tune in every day new stuff on this feed every day matt green talk to you soon buddy yes sir All right, hello, and welcome back to the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I am now joined by old friend. He's here every single week. You're hearing this on a Thursday because it's Fangraph's John Taylor. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I am doing pretty good. How about yourself? Not too bad. The weather's pretty nice. Do my walk. Um, how how big of a walker is Fisher? Is he is he pro walking? Is he good on a leash? Like, what is yeah, the situation? He likes, okay. he likes being outside. He likes walking. He likes doing all that fun stuff. He's a he's he's big on being outside. Really? So he's okay even with the heat, like with that that fluffy I mean, he coat. Doesn't, he doesn't love the heat. I'll, I'll uh, that is true. But otherwise, otherwise he's cool. He likes being outside. Mm. Um, John, are you yes. ready for today? In baseball history, uh, always, literally always. <laughs> isn't it great? Isn't it great? Um, wow, I just lost my place. Okay, there it is. So today, in 1885, John Taylor, George H. Rawlings. Mm-hmm. You know that word. You know where I'm going uh, with this. He patents a close-fitting baseball glove that features padding made of felt and rubber in the fingers, thumb, and palm. The owner of a St. Louis sporting goods store invested in the padded piece of equipment 
to prevent players from bruising their hands when catching a ball because before this invention, they were just catching liners <laughs> with their hands, their bare hands, John. Yeah. Back in the day was really different in that regard, and I genuinely am amazed that those guys made it through full seasons without suffering like debilitating, career-ending, very serious injuries, uh, given that they were using gloves that were more or less just made out of paper, as far as I can tell. So good job by George Rawlings, making sure that people didn't get their hands broken forever going forward. Definitely a good thing, I think. Another good thing. Today, 1963 at Connie Mack Stadium, Braves left-hander Warren Spahn tosses a complete game, edging Philadelphia 3-2. to the triumph is the Southpaw's 20th victory and ties Christy Mathewson's record of 13 seasons of 20 or more wins. 13 seasons of 20 more wins. That is never happening ever again, right? Like, that's no, gone. No, ab- absolutely not. No, we're never going to get another. I think we'd be more likely to get a 20-game winner as a reliever at this point, just someone mm-hmm. who vultures wins, like as a bulk guy, than we would any actual real starting pitcher ever throw a 20 win season again just i'm just gonna look this up real uh try to look this up really fast using uh using stat head slash the tool formerly known as game finder i forget now i've I've already forgotten now what it's called what it used to be called on baseball reference um yes let's let's see the number of and i'm just gonna look it up super try to look this up super fast the number of players with wins greater than or equal to 20 in the last oh geez let's just say since the start of 2000 since the start of 2010 because mm-hmm. i feel like that's a pretty appropriate uh breaking point in the last decade plus we have not had a 20 game winner in baseball since 20 or since 2019 when garrett cole and justin verlander did it mm. and since 2010 we have had a grand total of 23 20-game win seasons. Oh, my goodness. That's it. So Christy Mathewson and Warren Spahn combined had more 20-game win seasons than every pitcher in Major League Baseball for the last 11 years. (laughs) What do you even do with that? It's like it's just a completely different game. It's It's a totally different game, and that's kind of part of it, is you recognize that that is an incredible stat that guys just used to throw until their arms, in some cases, just stopped functioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I, baseball is definitely better without guys throwing 200 pitches a game. Like careers have obviously been, I think the average slash mean uh, major league baseball career, especially for a pitcher, has probably been extended. I know obviously there are guys like like Nolan Ryan who were freaks who just pitched for 15 years uh, throwing 230 380 innings a season. But I would wager that the average pitcher probably lasts longer now because they are not being asked to do this, especially not being asked to do this at the amateur or minor league level especially, um, or less so than, than years past. So that's a good thing. But yeah, just imagine, I, I think there's something because you you and I, our generation is probably, millennials are probably the last existing generation of baseball fans who can remember what it was like to watch a starting pitcher just routinely do this. Mm-hmm. In part because we had, you know, we had Roy Halladay in his prime and CeCe Sabathia in his prime and Justin Verlander in his prime and Adam Wainwright in his prime and Clayton Kershaw in his prime. Etc. Etc. So on and so forth. The guys who you could consistently—I think, really, the only guy you can really—you would, if you ask me, like, who's the best bet to win twenty games of all active players? Let's say going forward uh, in a season, Max Scherzer. But 
yeah, those guys are very much the anomalies now. And future generations of baseball are probably never going to see anything like we saw again. And which is crazy to think about that for close to like for 120 years, the starting pitcher reigned supreme and had uh, primacy and dominance over over the major leagues as a whole in terms of their importance and their you know their durability, so to speak. But now it's the starting pitcher is not quite an endangered species, but it is definitely a changed role in what it means and. Yeah, for good and for bad. I mean, I aesthetically prefer the days when you would see Roy Halladay go in seven, eight, or nine innings, but I know obviously not every pitcher can do that. It just does feel weird, though, when you get to points where it's, you know, a pitcher throws, a, I know this is obviously old, but a starter throws three or four innings and then they're done. It's like, that's come on now. Like, but this isn't baseball. It's still baseball, but it doesn't really feel like baseball anymore. Yeah, I don't think that part is good i also just think it would be more of an issue if this was popping up in the playoffs like this is something i think about a lot is just with how many eyeballs pivot to the to the playoffs when just baseball is just ramped up and everybody's eyes are on the creme de la creme of what major league baseball has to offer and i don't think they remember a random tuesday that the rays ran out an opener in july like no one notices stuff like that but if this was to become a commonplace in the playoffs where um every series just has teams just running through just a, a ludicrous amount of relievers on their way to a title i think we're going to run into some serious problems because it's like with that comes it's going to be slower there's going to be a lot of commercials anyway there's going to be a lot of pre-game post-game stuff um i just i think that is something to to monitor but um in terms of player health it seems like it's a net positive and it uh lengthens a lot of guys careers um but then like there's the other guys where it's like jacob Degrom um is wolverine so it actually doesn't apply to him um and we'll get to Degrom in a second but um yeah i don't know i i think we're still a ways away from figuring out what's going to change here but um it is interesting too john that like college doesn't look like this like it just once you get to the pros is when things change if you go watch a high school game a pro game or a college game it's just still very much like 2009 um it, it's it's very interesting i wonder if that trickles down um as the years go by but um it's kind of it's kind of alarming to go to a braves game in a tennessee volunteers baseball game within the same calendar week it's uh it's a totally different game yeah although i wonder if the college game and the high school game are going to change in response to what Major League Baseball is now, where you do have stuff like, yeah, pitcher doesn't need to go uh, eight or seven innings to start. You know, I do wonder at what point Major League teams start. I don't know, maybe not. Like they're not pulling Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter in the fourth inning for Vanderbilt ever. Like that was not something that was no, just but, happening. But, but that's the thing. But and I, and I think that that's obviously where the the big question lies because obviously college and high school programs have very different goals than Major League programs. You know, right. Like when when Jack Leiter, I, be, I believe he is already in the Rangers system now, and, and mm-hmm. I don't know if he's pitched or not this year. But assuming next year he he gets sent to Low A of some of some sort, either Low A or High A, he's probably only going to be making three or four inning appearances just to start to keep his arm fresh. And I can understand that. I think the question becomes, like you said, like what what does this sport look like when no one is consistently going five innings anymore? Mm-hmm. When it is just a parade of relievers, or at least three to four inning guys, and maybe. I don't know if it works. I know there are teams that have tried it in their minor league system, Colorado and Houston in particular. Maybe Major League Baseball eventually ends up in a piggyback system where instead of one starting pitcher a night, you see two. And each of them handles somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four innings. And 
maybe there's fewer relievers that way, and that way everyone's arm stays healthier. But, I, I mean, I can't say for sure. I do not know what the future of this looks like. I mean, I do think you already did see that in the playoffs last year, especially with Tampa Bay. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the, the Blake Snell move in the World Series was kind of the one I think that everyone jumped on as uh, kind of that strategy gone too far. But, I mean, that's what they were doing throughout the postseason as a whole because that raised team with the exception, not even really with the exception of Snell, that raised team including Snell and Tyler Glass now, uh, I don't think they really had anyone they felt comfortable being like, let's let you see a lineup three times through and or get you through the sixth day. That's the important part of that, right? The third time through. That's like yeah, lost I mean, in that's, translation that's, with all of that. It was literally because of the third time through stuff. It, the third time through penalty is part of it. But there's also, I think, the reality that every Major League Baseball team has a bullpen with at least three or four different guys who throw 96 miles an hour with wipeout sliders from some weird angle or some <laughs> incredible amount of... And like just the sheer ability of what can now be measured and quantified in baseball means you now have such a such a deep understanding not just of who's in your bullpen but when best to use them and the one i always go back to for the rays is you know their bullpen strategy i mean obviously it made sense because it got them as far as it did but it made sense in because they had guys like ryan thompson where it's we know exactly when where and how to utilize him so that he will be most successful and when viewed in that lens the question of do you want you know 15 relievers or or one starter or what have you uh, becomes a slightly different question when it's, well, if we can guarantee that putting this reliever in the game is just going to lead to a better outcome, more likely than not, then I don't really see why teams and managers would kind of stick to that established orthodoxy of you just ride with your starter. Um, although I will say in terms of injury stuff, like, yes, I, I, I do think part of this too is just keep trying to keep pitchers from getting injured, although on, the one, on one, pitchers always get hurt. There is no way for pitchers not to get hurt. Only the freaks don't get hurt, um, and even they get hurt every now and again. Pitching is just designed to break a human body, or at least the human arm. It is not a natural thing to do, mm. or at least not that rep- not that often with that much force. The second part of it is, and, and I think this is something that I, I would love to see. I forget exactly who I, who wrote about it or, or who saw talking about it, but it's something I'd love to see kind of tackled more. Is I I, that just, I just remembered it was Tom Verducci in Sports Illustrated writing about how the Rays, in the process of using all these different relievers, in part because they've just had so many injuries to their top guys that they've just had to keep cycling through their bodies, a lot of those guys, if they do get hurt, are just kind of being disposed of. Because there is nothing more disposable or fungible in Major League Baseball than a, than a reliever. Especially when they all throw really hard with good breaking stuff now, and when you're when your minor league system can just pump out 35 of those guys without trying like Tampa's can, then I think player safety and player health really falls by the wayside, especially when you are a team like Tampa and all you care about is maximizing the efficiency of the roster and making sure it is the most, the best it can be for the, for the, for the most uh, effective price. And that does mean just cycling through minor league relievers. And that does mean overusing them. That means dry humping them. That means call. That means putting them up and down. On, I know. I know. I know. I just. I wish there were a different phrase, but that's the reality of it. It means making them throw a lot of innings uh, in one go. It means. It means them having to wear bad outings. It means up and down on the shuttle constantly. Because you have to remember too, when they're in the minors, they're still pitching down there too. And for as much as the minors are about player development, minor league teams want to win as well. So the good relievers are being used down there. Sometimes it means you go from being a starter to a reliever to a starter to an opener to a bulk guy to a start. You know, it, a lot of it is about the modularity of modern-day baseball players and how, because they are now so good that you can just call up random guys from AAA and more likely than not they'll be able to give you at least a useful inning or two. But that definitely doesn't line up with, with the best practices for player safety and health, especially when you're talking about guys 
like the in the middle of the race bullpen guys who are either career minor leaguers, uh, veterans on their last legs, guys who've just been floating through various systems because they're just you know they're they're not good for, for you know for a variety of reasons. Those guys in particular are going to get used up and chewed up, used up and spit out uh, with far more speed and energy than probably anyone else on a major league roster. Absolutely. Um, don't forget, folks, you can listen to John and I every Thursday on this feed. We record it on Wednesday, but it, you you hear it on Thursdays. Um, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you listen to us via that way, go to chasethomaspodcast.com, patreon.com slash chasethomaswriter, sportsrenaissanceman.substack.com, and subscribe to fangraphs.com if you have not already john edits into social over there there's all kinds of great writers writing every single day at fangraphs.com so if you want to stay informed as the last month of the major league baseball season winds down make sure you are checking fangraphs every day and subscribed and supporting the great work being done over there and follow john at j a taylor on twitter.com john um the braves extended charlie morton through 2022 there's going to be a, i think it's a team option or a player option for 2023 for him i thought this man was retiring but apparently he is uh gonna keep he's enjoying it he's enjoying being an ace on this playoff bound atlanta braves roster really amazing that they've managed to turn it around the way they did especially after losing acuna that's that's really something um i know that you know, it, it's all just for being knocked out in the division series by whoever it is they they come up against. I Wait, hold on. Ready for no, that. no, we're not doing that. You're not doing that. We don't know. We don't know who they're gonna get. We don't know. But um, yeah. With regards to Morton, I mm. mean, I also was under the impression that retirement was coming. But given that Atlanta is, you know, as close as you can get to being in Florida without playing for one of the Florida teams, uh, I think it makes sense for Morton. I know Morton's, you know, he's said previously, I, if I'm going to keep playing, I want to play and be near my family. Obviously, this works for him. He gets to spend spring training in Florida. He gets to be nearby in Georgia. So it works for them. It obviously makes sense for the Braves because I think, you know, you look at where that rotation was two seasons ago. You look at where it is now. Uh, I don't really know what you can count on Mike Soroka for at this point. And regardless, he's not going to be back till the middle of next season anyway. Uh, Ian Anderson has taken seemingly a step back. I know he's dealt with a lot of injury stuff. Max Freed. Max Freed is a very good pitcher. I don't think he's someone that at this point is really going to develop into that number one guy. He just seems more like a very capable mid-rotation starter, which, hey, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Every team needs, needs mid-rotation starters. But I think the Braves in particular decided, look, there's these are the three guys we've got. They each have their own excellent issues. The rest of that rotation, Waskar Noah, Tuki Toussaint, uh, whoever they still have kicking around in their minor league system they want to try out, uh, clearly that's not something you can count on for next season, especially knowing that the NLEs is probably going to be tight again next year. So it definitely makes sense. You have a guy like Morton, you can depend on him. I mean, he's run an ERA or at least a, 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 a pitching independent metric ERA, you know, FIP, Sierra, X ERA, whichever one you want to pick. I think they have all run in the mid three and a half for the last five years running. Mm. He is as consistent as you can get in terms of performance. Obviously the big question with him is durability as he gets older, he's obviously a guy who's also not going to... He's not going to be a guy who gives you seven innings a night. You're probably going to get five to six. But his stuff remains very strong. He had no issues with the sticky stuff. Uh, enforcement ban, the spin on his curveball is, I think, completely unchanged from from before to now. Uh, velocity, he's got velocity back. I think that was the other big thing that we'd seen is velocity dip the last two seasons. 
He's brought it at least, I don't know if it's all the way back to what it was at its peak a few years ago, but it's it's more than enough right now. And at a one-year deal for only $20 million, that's a really good price. I mean, consider that $20 million is what the Braves spent combined on Drew Smiley and I think actually Morton. Uh, so basically, yeah, that's all that would have bought them next season is two injured starters for all intents and purposes. And the Braves have more than enough of those guys. I think they needed someone that they could count on. I don't really think that they're going to be playing in the big end of the free agent pool this year only because they still need to give Freddie Freeman some kind of extension, and I assume they need to figure out what they're doing with Marcelo Zuna and what's left of his contract before they can get down the brass tacks with anything else, not to mention whatever arbitration they have to hand out. Um, so I think it makes sense, too. And, and, and similarly with Travis Darno, although they're, you know, that's in large part because the market for catchers is awful this, this offseason. And Atlanta has gotten virtually nothing out of the catchers it's used who are not named Travis Darno. And I think similar to the rotation, they don't want to go into next season hoping that William Contreras and your pick of Luke Jackson or Shea Langoliers or, uh, or sorry, not Luke Jackson. Um, what's the catching prospect's name? His name is also Jackson. Well, he's gone. We traded him. Oh, he's gone. Oh, yeah. okay, never mind. Then even, even more so then with that catching depth also a Alex little, Jackson, a little dipped. Alex, Alex Jackson, thank you. Um, that made sense. But yeah, I think it just makes sense for the Braves. They look at their roster now. It is a playoff roster, obviously. They will get Acuna back at some point next season, probably around May. So I think it makes sense for them to look and go, hey, the pieces that are here now and that are working and that mean we don't have to do anything come the offseason if we don't need if we don't have to, let's just let's just lock that down now, see how things shake out, especially with the CBA, and then go from there. So yeah, the the, the Bourne deal makes a lot of sense to me. And I think it's a very good move for Atlanta to keep him under uh, under contract for another year and possibly two. Yeah, I'm excited. I think he's been a pleasant surprise and all and just really been a quiet workhorse for this rotation that has needed uh, his leadership and also just needed someone they could depend on um, at the top with Soroka yeah, gone. And, and I do think that's going to be the same thing next year is that, like I said, with the three guys you have theoretically atop that rotation, Soroka, Freed, and Anderson, I don't really know that you can count on them either for consistency or durability. So it just makes sense to get another option like Morton in there. Just someone you know, it's like, okay, if he's healthy, we know what we're getting. Absolutely. Um, John, we're going to take a quick break to your message from our sponsors, but we'll be right back. All right, we are back on the Chase Owens podcast with Fangraph's own John Taylor. Uh, John, Cedric Mullins, we've talked about him a lot this season. Great season for him. One of the bright spots in the Baltimore Orioles, a, a favorite of this podcast. We love to, to keep the spotlight on the Baltimore Orioles. Um, he joined in the past week the 25-25 club, 25 dingers, 25 stolen bases. He is one of three Orioles to ever do it. I'm going to try to guess the other two. I actually don't have it in front of me. I'm going to pull it up now. Oh, okay. Uh, my guesses are going to be... God, that is tricky. Um, the thing is, I don't know if Eddie... Oh, you're going to you're gonna guess you're gonna guess these two. Okay. Well, now the pressure's really <laughs> I'm going to guess one is Cal Ripken, although I don't think he was much of a runner. I don't think I it was Cal... Like he was... Oh, go ahead. Um, shush. Is is one of them Brady Anderson? No. Oh. Do you want me to tell you? I'll give you one. See if you can get the other. Okay, give me one. Don Baylor. Don Baylor. Not would not have gotten that one. Totally have forgotten. Don Baylor played for the Orioles too. Uh, my last two guesses will be they're, they're going to be current. Miggy Tejada. Nope. And Robbie Alomar. 
Incorrect. Reggie Jackson. Reggie. I also forgot Reggie played for the Orioles back in the day. Yeah, whenever we think about Reggie Jackson and Don Baylor, do you know who we think about? The Baltimore Orioles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, all of one season with the Baltimore Orioles in 1976 for Reggie. 277, 351, 502 with a 155 OPS plus that led the American League. 27 homers, 91 runs driven in, and 28 stolen bases caught seven times. Not bad. Not bad. bad. Speaking of not bad, one of our favorites. He's just a delight to watch the highlights of because you're not watching a full Kansas City Royals game in 2021 in mid-September. But Alberto Mondesi tearing the cover off the ball right now. At Alberto back in back in business, that's good to see. He's had su- he's had such a rough season just in terms of all the injuries. I mean, this he's only played 15 games, which is kind of nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about it, like in the last two seasons, he's going to end up playing a grand total of about 90 games of baseball. In fact, he has yet to cross. He's only crossed 100 games once in his career, and that was in 2019. And granted, his career only started in 2016, but yeah, this is a guy who would over six years of baseball has played a grand total of 323 games. That's particularly not great. That's 54 games a season. And granted, the the weird 2020 season throws things into into a bit of a mess. Although, funnily enough, that's the one season he's been basically a steady regular player because he played in 59 of 60 games. Regardless, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's very important for Kansas City for him to... I mean, they need to see at a certain point what it is he can do. Because this coming... He, is, he, is, uh, he has completed his three years of pre-arb... Uh, what's it called? of team control, which means he's arbitration eligible next year, which means he'll be getting a raise from the $2.5 million he made this year for you know, guaranteed, unless the Royals then tender him, which would make no sense. Regardless of, the, obviously, for the Royals and for any team that does not like to spend, these arbitration years make a player's valuation that much more difficult. It is especially that much more difficult when all you have is roughly 1,200 plate appearances scattered over six years to look at, and what they suggest is someone who has still not learned how to take a pitch. I mean, even as he's hitting, even as he's got an OPS plus of 169 in an admittedly tiny sample, uh, that's 18 strikeouts against one single walk, one walk in 55 trips to the plate. And I, again, I know that's also scattered across um, across a, a few different months because of all the injuries that Bondesi has had. But since coming back, I believe he has not walked at all. Mm. Uh, no, he walked... No, he has not. He has been. He has played five games since coming back to the Royals. He has yet to walk while he has struck out uh, some handful of times in there for some reason. Fangraphs game logs don't let me see that. Um, or I'd have to tab a little further. But point being, you know, he's still have a guy who has not really shown much of any sign of plate discipline in his career. In fact, seems to be getting worse with regards to that. Although I think most. Well, it's funny because on the one hand, you want to say, okay, well, you want to give him a mulligan for the season because he was barely active for it. On the other hand, as I've already been saying, he needs to start showing something consistent. And not just something consistent, he needs to show that he can be on the field consistently. That he has the durability to be a full-time Major League shortstop. Because otherwise, Bobby Witt Jr. is is knocking is going to be knocking on that door very soon for the Royals, it feels like. He has had a fantastic start. Not to mention... Where the are they going to put him? Prospects. Where do you think he gets the majority of his defensive spots I at? I mean, I, am under, I was under the assumption that he was still playing the infield um, for... Kansas City uh, that they were going to let him continue to do that basically until he could not anymore. Uh, the reports of just going back through the Kansas City, through the Royals prospect list preseason. Uh, Eric Longenhagen noted Eric Longenhagen, sorry Eric, 
noted that he is very likely not only to stay at shortstop, but also be quite good there. He's got uh, Eric through a 50 grade with a 60 ceiling on his fielding and a 70 on his arm, which of course would also suggest that if shortstop doesn't work out, uh, they could put him in the outfield. Or maybe this is a sort of kind of Fernando Tatis situation where Witt can play both depending on what they need at, at any given moment. But that is something for the Royals, obviously, to consider that they have uh, they have Bobby Witt coming. Not only that, but they have also in their preseason top 10, their first-round pick from 2020, Nick Lofton out of Baylor, who is not the hitter that, that Witt is, but it seems like a solid middle infield contact-oriented option, which the Royals love. Further down the list, you have Jason Guzman, who was signed in 2015 out of the Dominican Republic and is now going to be 23. Uh, so that gives him... You know that that is another option the Royals have. So, which is not to say that I think the Royals are going to cut Alberto Mondesi this offseason. I don't think that makes any sense for them. He's only going to be making three or four million dollars anyway. But just to say that it does seem like he is starting to get short on time to prove that he can do this, and especially because when you, I mean, I mean the nice thing, especially that Mondesi has on his side, is that he is young. He is still only twenty. He just turned twenty six back in July. So this next year will be his age 27 season. There's still time, and he certainly has not just the skill set, but also the, the the bloodline to make that work. But, yeah, it's... I mean, there's also the fact that he's not even currently playing shortstop. He's playing third base, but which has more to do with, I think, Nicky Lopez than anything else. But it's also very clear that that being the case, that the Royals are not married to him at shortstop, and that I do think it's probably... They're probably at the point where they're starting to think, if we can't rely on this guy, we need to see what else is out there, and he also needs to prove that he can do this on a regular le- on a regular basis. Absolutely. Um, Bradley Zimmer, really good piece in MLB.com a few weeks ago that I wanted to touch on here. Bradley Zimmer, uh, speaking to guys who've just like kind of been around, been injured a lot, high expectations, Sarah Langs and Mandy Bell, uh, friends of the pod, both been on the pod, I believe. Um wrote a good piece about his Zimmer's resurgence over the last few weeks. What do you, what do you make of Bradley Zimmer? Cause I think we joked before the season, John of like who let's play a game of who the fuck is in the Cleveland Indians outfield. Yeah. And that question still kind of remains because I don't really think that they've done much of a job of answering mm-hmm. it so far. Uh, Zimmer, I imagine would be a guy that they really would very much like to see become a thing. He was their first round pick back in 2014 out of the university of San Francisco He's never really shown much of an offensive game so far. I think if you're the, but if you're the, if you're Cleveland, I think there are a few things you probably should feel better. Although it's worth wondering, like you know, the, Zimmer is probably a guy who's on the streakier side because he is not a particularly patient hitter. There's also the fact that he's carrying an OBP or an OBP uh, batting average on balls in play of 381, which obviously is not a sustainable thing. Um, if you're if you're Cleveland, what is probably a little concerning is that he's even with the good season he's had or better season than usual, he's still running a 313 woba, and that the expected peripheral stats say he has he should have a woba of 313, or not should have, but that the peripherals would suggest a 313 woba would be the end result. So even with all that batting average on balls and play luck, you're talking about a hitter who is barely at league average, both by uh, on base average and his way to runs created plus, which sits at 96. Striking out a ton. He is walking a little more than early in his career, not as much as last year. Hitting the ball harder, not grounding out as much. That is that is a good thing to note, too, is that his hard hit rate has spiked way back to where it was earlier in his career. His barrel rate from last season has doubled. Most importantly, I think, is that his launch angle is back in that kind of 5 to 10 degree range that I think is better for a fast guy like him. 
I think obviously you want to put the ball in the air when you can, but I don't think Zimmer particularly strikes me as a guy who should be aiming for the fences a lot. Um, I mean, he's running a 350 slugging percentage. His X slugging is 354. I think you probably suggest. I think you'd probably say that he's a guy who you would feel like, yeah, he's probably going to run a, a slugging percentage somewhere south of 400 for his career. The trick for Zimmer is going to be: can you make the plate discipline gains stick? While all, or can you can you create some plate discipline gains closer to what you had last year? while also cutting back down on the strikeouts. It may be a question of just how do you balance that aggressiveness needed to... I mean, I don't necessarily know if Zimmer fits the category of slap hitter, but as a speedy guy who hits ground balls, certainly that's where he's going to be. He's not a guy who's going to punish you if you throw him a lot of strikes. He is going to be able to hit the ball harder, but he's never going to be a power guy. Can so, he be Michael Brantley? <laughs> yeah, no. No, you think, you think that even with a 381 batting average in balls, his batting average is still just 241. That's and his good. expected batting average is even lower than that. This is not a guy who is going to be the kind of line drive, gap-to-gap machine that Brantley has been, which is not a, a knock on Zimmer. Michael Brantley's a very, very good hitter. But I don't think that's what you should expect if you're Cleveland. I think what you should expect is, honestly, probably something close to what they already have in their roster in Miles Straw. Mm. Um, which I think He's actually been a pleasant surprise for them. He, he has been, and I think it also makes sense. Zimmer's a good defender, Straw's a good defender. If nothing else, if you can have those guys who can get on base a little, run, patrol the outfield... Is that ideal? No, but if you're the, if you're Cleveland, you have some power bats in Jose Ramirez, in Framil Reyes, in uh, at least theoretically Bobby Bradley somewhere down the line. Josh Naylor, uh, if they can, if Naylor can get healthy, if Bradley can kind of find his his footing a little bit, uh, and you have at least down prospect wise, you have obviously Nolan Jones, your third baseman of the future. You have Gabriel Arias, who looks like a middle infield option of the future. Further down, Brian Rocchio and Tyler Freeman, who's currently hurt. And, of course, George Valera, one of their, uh, probably their top outfield prospect at the moment. So, I think the, the outfield Cleveland has now certainly does not feel like a contending outfield. I don't really know how you put Miles, or Miles Straw, Bradley Zimmer, and Bobby Bradley, to, or not Bobby Bradley, sorry, Harold, Harold Ramirez, really, okay. Uh, how you put them together and really feel like that's an outfield worth doing. I know that's been Cleveland's problem forever. But I do think that at the very least, Straw and Zimmer is a better starting point next year for what they want to do. Zimmer can hold on to what he's done. And then the question for Cleveland becomes, you know, where can we find some power? Because this is a team that really has not hit for, it feels like at least, has not hit for particularly much power uh, this season. If you look at their if you look at their team stats, they rank, um, where are they in home runs? Cleveland, where did you go? Why can't I read Cleveland anymore? Oh, there they are. By home runs, they're just slightly above the league average. Uh, by slugging percentage, they're roughly league average. So they've not been a bad team on aggregate offensively. They've actually probably been far better than than I think we would have expected. A 94 OPS plus right now, which is just shy of league average. 12 points ahead of last place Pittsburgh. I think we would have expected to see Cleveland more in that Pittsburgh, Texas, Miami group. Right now, they're right alongside Cincinnati, Milwaukee, the Mets. You know, you can win, or at the very least, you can contend with an offense that is roughly league average. I think what Cleveland needs, though, is just to keep doubling down on that because, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they have got some nice pieces they can work with, or at least some useful pieces, but they're still just a below-average offensive lineup, and without the pitching behind that, because, and I mean, that's the thing. That has been Cleveland's thing. The pitching is going to carry us, but with Shane Bieber hurt and with Carlos Carrasco gone, although he's been pitching very poorly for the Mets, and with Zach Plesak taking a step backward and Aaron Savale looking more like a mid-rotation guy or back-rotation guy than a, than a regular starter, you know, that, that I think is going to be equally tricky for Cleveland is, you know, 
how confident do they how confident they feel that what happened pitching wise this year was a result of injuries and just poor performance as opposed to something is wrong with the way we're developing these guys now. Mm. Well, we shall see. We shall see. TBD, obviously. It is a TBD situation. A TBD. Uh, Nelson Cruz becomes the oldest player in MLB history to hit 30 dingers. Good for Nelson. Good for Nelson Cruz. That man is going to be playing. How many more years would you bet he's he's still hitting? I would give him one or two more. Because the truth is, like for as much as I feel like he can kind of, he probably could hit forever. I think as we talked about in the off season when uh, when the Twins signed him or re-signed him rather, that his market is just limited. But he is just a DH at this point. He cannot play the field, or at least he should not play the field. I don't think he actually even has played the field this season. But I just want to double check that real fast. Has he? There's no he way. Has, he has played one game at first base for Tampa. Mm. Which of, of course it was Tampa. The well, speaking of Tampa, by the way, can I can I stop you right there and let me see if you can guess this about Dingers in Tampa Bay? Go for it. How many home runs is Brandon Lau on pace to hit this season? Uh, I know he's hit thirty three. So with about three weeks left to go in the season, I would guess or closer to four. Forty five. Yeah, forty plus, John. Brandon Lau, forty plus home runs. Are you kidding me? I know. Crazy. Despite what? the fact his OBP has dropped like 35 points from last season. Very strange season for Brandon Lau. But, I mean, Cruz, as long as there is a, uh, an American League team or if we get the Universal DH National League team that needs a hitter just in the order, I think Shout out to Atlanta. Playing. Shout out to Atlanta. And I do think, and, but I think that's going to determine a lot of what Nelson Cruz's future looks like yeah. is whether or not the NL does adopt the, the Universal DH. If they do, I think he can probably keep kicking for another couple of years, maybe two to three. As, honestly, probably as long as he feels like playing and as long as his results are there. Otherwise, I would probably imagine that next year might be it for him because it's just kind of he's a guy no one is going to give a long term deal to. He's just going to keep getting these one year contracts pretty much until he does not want to. Um, I, whether or not that's going to be with Tampa, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the last contract he signed with Minnesota was one year, $13 million. I would wager that he would probably get something similar to that in the ten to fifteen million dollar range again this offseason because he's shown I mean he is not as he has not had the same season he had in twenty twenty, granted shorter season. Um looking at least at the uh geez, wow, I just totally just blacked out there. Uh looking at just the superficial stats, he's obviously taken a little bit of a step back, not just from last year but the year before, uh, which is I mean, he is forty, that is a thing that's just going to happen. Uh, looking at the peripherals otherwise though he continues to hit the ball very very hard because that is what he does best so I, I would think Cruz can play at least another season I would wager that if there's no universal DH next year will probably be it for him if there is universal DH maybe he tries to keep on going past 2022 depending on the season he has but I guess if there's one thing you do worry about with Cruz too is he is start, he is swinging and missing more I think now than he was in years previous um, part of that is I think just you know pitchers throw very hard part of that is getting old but, yeah, I, I would love to see him just keep going forever. He's just great. Um, especially because I I imagine eventually, once we do get to the Nelson Cruz retirement issue, there'll be the welcome the question of, is he... Uh, no, I don't think that question will really be. Nelson Cruz is not a Hall of Famer, unfortunately. He's a, he was a very good hitter for a very long time, or for a good chunk of time. But in terms of even just looking at the two guys you recognize as regular DHs in the Hall of Fame, and Edgar Martinez and David Ortiz, he has not been as good as either of the two of them were over the course of their careers. So... Or, or sorry, the one DH in the Hall of Fame and the one DH who will, I imagine, 
be in the Hall of Fame within the next 10 years. I don't remember exactly when his first year on the ballot is, but mm. I expect Ortiz to make it in eventually. Just I doubt he'll be a first ballot guy, though. Okay. Who would you who would you pick up uh, between Jock and Adam Duvall next year for the Braves? If you're the Braves? Yeah, because I think they're only going to pick up one, one option, and I don't know who uh, it's going to be at this point. I go back and forth would, on it. I mean, Peterson offers more value just in terms of if you're going to because I think both of those guys have pretty well demonstrated that they that they just should be platoon bats. I mean, I know mm. I know Duvall is a guy who's been a platoon bat largely in his career because he he is not as good against right-handers as he is against lefties. Uh, and I know splits are obviously a there are a million little things that go into splits as to whether or not they work. I mean, Jock has handled himself okay against lefties. He just hasn't hit for any power. Um, I could see maybe another team trying to give him a chance at full-time work. I do think it is more likely to be a team like uh, a second division club that would be okay with letting him kind of just do that because overall he's been below league average offensively as a as basically a regular. Uh, I do wonder if the best situation for him is just what it was in L.A. where he was just a platoon bat on the strong side of a platoon against right-handers. That being the case, and also the fact that Peterson is a better defender, and I and he almost certainly is younger. I can't imagine Adam Duvall is under thirty years old. Uh, he is not. He is thirty three, or he just actually just turned thirty three. Happy birthday, Adam Duvall. Um, I think Peterson just does more for you overall in the roster, whereas Duvall, I think, is more of just a a very specific bench bat for a team that has a lefty heavy outfield, which I also believe is not the case for Atlanta. Mm. Um, I think it's going to come down to the DH. If there's a universal yeah, DH that'll, next that'll year, it, it's going to be Duvall. <laughs> well, because, yeah, I think that's the thing. If there is a universal DH in, in the National League, I think you do see guys like Duvall will probably be getting those nods for sh- on short, small contracts to be part of. I'd give him a five-year deal if we get a universal DH. I'm okay with Duvall for our DH for the next five years. He'll still be hitting dingers the, at 38. I think the more likely thing, though, is that instead of Atlanta or any other National League team, with the exception of any squad that already kind of has that option built in in terms of a guy who doesn't have a defensive home, but now he does. I think more team teams are more likely not to use the DH as a rotating kind of rest spot or a way just to kind of play matchups. You know, if you're up against a lefty starter and you do have Duvall on your bench and you don't have a regular DH, there you go. If you're up against a righty starter and your outfield's already full, perfect place for Jack Peterson or for one of your weaker outfielders. And I think that's, it's. I mean, not only does that seem like a more efficient and kind of effective way to use the DH and just kind of giving it to one lumbering guy you have, unless you to lumber unless you already happen to have said lumbering guy but it's mm. also cheaper you know it's, it's definitely if you if you give nl teams you can either have one nelson cruz or for the cost of one nelson cruz free reserve outfielder slash infielder types you can just rotate as needed i think mo- teams more often than not will go with that with those three guys especially because nelson cruz does not have the flexibility if you do need to put another guy at the age to give them a break or just because you want their bat in the lineup you can't move cruz anywhere else so, I mean, that that also, I think, is going to be a problem for him in free agency, again, is that he really is only a DH. And so you it's not just he's only a DH, but you're really only signing him if you just don't feel like if either you're a contender and you need that thump in your lineup, or if you just do not have a good DH option. And that's kind of the problem, too, I think, DH-wise, is that contenders are not going to go out of their way to sign DH hitters. or des- <laughs> They're not going to go out of their way to sign designated hitter hitters. They're not going to go out of their way to sign hitters with the express purpose of playing them at DH, they're going to go out and accumulate as many bats as they can and just see who kind of fits in that rotation, I think. At Jacob least that's De- what I would expect. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Jacob deGrom, I sent this link to you last night because it, uh, it cracked me up. Um, it was it was delightful. Um, 
so Sandy is just talking like every day. Sandy's just talking out loud. Sandy Alderson just just yakking. He's just yakking, and uh, he was yakking yesterday. And Jacob Degrom just doesn't have any problems anymore. It disappeared. Like <laughs> what? Well, I, so I'm and for those who don't know, I'm gonna read the quote that. Mm. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pull the AP... St- I'm a, uh, this is off ESPN. This is the AP story. I'm just going to read the first uh, three paragraphs of some skipping. New York Mets says Jacob deGrom's right elbow is healthy, but the team is uncertain whether he will return the season, team president Sandy Alderson said. Uh, stats, stats, stats. At this point, the sprain has resolved itself, Alderson said before the Mets play Tuesday night at Miami. The elbow is perfectly intact based on the MRIs and the clinical evaluations from our doctors. We need to begin to see whether this is more of a chronic issue that relates to mechanics in some way. But at the same time, at the same time as Sandy Alderson is saying that, we also have him saying that Jacob deGrom has a partial tear in his UCL. Mm -hmm. How can an elbow be perfectly intact if there is a partial tear? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. And I understand the idea that a partially torn UCL can to a degree repair itself, or at the very least does not need to be surgically repaired. We've seen a few pictures deal with that. Masahiro Tanaka is probably the best and most recent example of that. Um, So I don't think this is the Mets or Sandy Alderson talking out of their ass or just straight up lying. On the other hand, it's the Mets. There is no reason to trust or believe anything they say. And in fact, especially when it comes to injuries, the good bet is that things are way worse with Jacob deGrom than we think. I still don't understand why the Mets have any interest in trying to get him to pitch again this season. There is literally no upside to that at all unless you just want to see is he still healthy and boy the why not just give him more time to get healthy for a team that is going nowhere well maybe to get the, the the fans minds off players thumbing him down I, and their whole front office just being on I fire joked i joked about i joked about that i did a i co-hosted the the chin music podcast with kevin goldstein over at Fangraphs, which uh, i'm gonna horn into your space check it out if you haven't we've got two podcasts now actually three uh including effectively wild and Fangraphs audio Love it. But, love it. But for a Mets team that is four games back, that has playoff odds currently per per our site of six or sorry of eight point seven percent, with a guy dealing with with your staff ace who you owe like seventy five million dollars to for the next three years or, or whatever exactly it is, who is the most important player on your roster, who has in your own admission had or has a partially torn UCL. There is no benefit, no upside, no reason at all to get him back on a pitching mound this year. Once the words partially torn UCL were became known, the immediate response was, okay, great, we're shutting you down for the rest of the year, go get healthy, uh, we'll see you in the winter slash the spring when you get to Florida. It, it just makes, it makes no sense to me why the Mets want to try to bring him back in any capacity. I assume sometime in the next week they will just make it official that they're not going to bring him back. But I did joke about that, that it's like bringing him back seems to be as much about taking Mets fans' minds off the fact that they're just yet again just a, a, a claptrap from, from top to bottom than about anything he can do on the field because the the risk of injury reoccurrence or of things getting worse would seem to me to be way higher than the chance that he provides anything of positive value over the two weeks' worth of games they would get him back for. Mm-hmm. as a reliever more likely than not or as a starter who's only throwing two or three innings but then again this is the same team that is trying to bring Noah Syndergaard back despite the fact that he has been told expressly not to throw breaking balls because he has not fully recovered from Tommy John apparently so yeah the Mets they just continue to 
they continue to do things in a way where you just you don't understand why they do what they do. They just do them, and they will just never stop doing them. Go Mets. Go Mets. <laughs> um, last thing we'll wrap up here, John. Derek Jeter into the Baseball Hall of Fame today. Sure. Your favorite Derek Jeter memory, yeah. like I know, being a Red Sox Ooh. guy. This is tough for you. Yeah. Um, there's a really good piece on ESPN.com from from one of the just the most delightful humans, Tim Kirkshin, um, about the iconic play that most people are going to remember. What happened? The flip. That, the flip. The flip or the dive? The the flip. Okay. It's the flip. Because if we were going to talk about the dive, I was going to get off on a long, long rant about how Pokey Reese made a similar, better play in that game, and no one talks about it. Well, to be fair, it's Pokey Reese. <laughs> I love Pokey Reese. He was a Do you like Pokey player. Reese because his name's Pokey Reese, or did you just actually like Pokey Reese? Can it be both? I guess. I love Pokey. I anyway, I, re- I remember Pokey more for the Reds than I do the Red Sox. He was he was brief. Him and Barry Larkin. He was on the he was on the 04, 04 team at one point, along okay. with Barry Larkin, actually. Oh, see, there you go, there you go. Um, what do you make of Jeter in uh, the Hall of Fame and? Uh, his career. I mean, it was always going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we we all. It's a, kind of it's a stunner. That. Derek Jeter made the yeah. baseball Hall of Fame. Shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think anyone. I mean, I don't think there is anyone surprised by this. Nor do I think there. there... But I'm not going to take away from the fact that he is. An all-time great baseball player, uh, an all-time great hitter for what he, at least for the type of hitting he did, he was never a power hitter, obviously. Um, and that, for as much as there is no real way to quantify it, that man really did have, seem to have something for those bigger moments and for the postseason, too. I've never understood it. I don't think there's any way to explain it. I doubt there's any scientific, objective, um, just imp- any. I don't think there's any way to quantify it. But it is just something where it's like you. I mean, if you ask people about Derek Jeter, and like you mentioned, the most his most famous play is the flip, and that was in a playoff game. And I think that's that more than anything is why Derek Jeter is in the Hall of Fame. It's not just the length of his career. It's not just the three thousand hits. It's not just being Mr. Yankee captain for for however many years. It's the playoff stuff. It's what he did yeah. on the biggest stage during the biggest games when everyone was you know when when things needed to happen. More often than not, Derek Jeter made them happen. And I hate saying this because it makes me sound like the, like the dumbest Yankees fan. Derek Jeter would just dare to make it happen when it needed to happen. Like, <laughs> well, to be fair, you can do the same thing with Nomar Garcia Parr. I go, no, you can't. Uh, don't do this. Don't do this. Um, yeah, I think I just ruined John's day with the Nomar, the Nomar call out there. Regardless, I... Uh, Jeter is a worthy and and deserving Hall of Famer, even though he is defensively atrocious. And oh, um, there you go. He is, I have no problem because this is the thing I think that most people have just accepted as reality at this point. He is and was one of the worst defensive infielders ever. An awful, awful defender with no range in either direction and whose hands were mediocre at best. Who, if there had been any justice, the second A Rod came to the Yankees, Jeter would have moved to second or third. He wouldn't have and had the career. Something, There's nothing cool no, about being a second baseman. But I think, and I, but I think that's part of why I think toward the end I especially kind of started to feel a certain way about Jeter. Kind of, I don't want to say resentful, but there was that essence of he seemed to think he, or he seemed to think he seemed to act like he was bigger than the team itself. 
Like I think he kind of like, was. Derek Jeter became less a player and more Derek Jeter the institution. And I think mm, the franchise the captain. itself, I think if you were to ask Brian Cashman, like, you know, casually off the record, you know, what he thought of Derek Jeter, I have to imagine it would probably be a little different than what you're going to hear either in Cooperstown or from whatever reporter is going to have talked to Cash about that. Because I do think the Yankees struggled and suffered late in his career because of his insistence that I am a full-time player, I am a shortstop, I am a leadoff hitter, despite the fact that he very clearly by the end was nowhere near the same player he used to be. And granted, it didn't really do them that much damage. It's not like they threw away a top-flight shortstop prospect or anything because he was blocking away, or, you know, it's not as if I don't, I don't think he certainly cost them. He didn't cost them anything that he hadn't already earned them, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like. If that was the price the Yankees had to pay for the first chunk of Derek Jeter's career, I think it's a price they're more than happy to pay. I just think for myself, when I looked at how that all happened, I was just kind of like, oh, he cares way more about his reputation and him, you know, what history says of him than really anything else at this point, I think. Um, but, I mean, hey, he's got five World Series. I mean, it he's turned got, into a ownership stake in the Marlins. Yeah. His brand is yeah, gigantic. And now, yeah, of course, and now he's and now he's doing his own baseball thing with Miami, which I always find of, found kind of weird because I was under the impression that Derek Jeter hated baseball, or at the very least that he was not someone who wanted to be involved in the game when he was done. That unlike the guys, unlike the I think he likes guys, making money. I think Derek Jeter yeah, I is. I think he likes making money and he likes being in charge. Right. And I never thought he was going to be, and I don't think anyone would have expected him to be one of those guys who shows up to spring training in uniform as a coach to run minor leaguers through drills. I don't think he's ever been that guy. I don't think any all-time great wants to be that either, though. Like, Peyton Manning never did. But I think there are guys who are just so attached to baseball Mm. that in a way that it's like, no, I want to keep working and and working in the sport in this capacity because I like doing it. And then there are guys like Jeter who, I mean, in part because of the the fame he built and and the career he built and and the, the money he made, where he can aim a little higher and go, well, no, what I want is to be part of the ownership suite. I want in on the real money. I don't want to just be hanging around baseball, hitting fungos for the rest of my life. I want baseball. Wow, shots fired at Ron Washington. No, that's not a shot at Ronnie Wash. Ronnie How do you, what, what, what drive-by because situation was that necessary for? Ronnie Wash loves hitting fungos, and I love that for Ronnie Wash. That's what Ronnie Wash wants to do. Yeah. That's clearly not what Derek Jeter wants to do. Well, I think both are fine. No, that's what I'm saying. There's no, there's no judgment between either. Right. It's just that I don't. Jeter never showed himself to be the guy who was going to be a Ronnie Wash type. Who no. was going to get into coaching or who was going to get into anything of that stuff. No, he's his not into the grunt work. Like he's no, into. His, I'm. I'm just going to wear my suits. I'm going to yeah, get his, spotted his on page six. It was going to be as a mogul. It was going to be as a businessman. Mm-hmm. It was going to be as an owner. And. There's a that reason he me, had Michael Jordan stuff everywhere. Like, there's yeah, a reason that, that, that me, yeah. But that to me also just feels in line with who Derek Jeter was, which in reality, mm-hmm. you look back on it, was way more of a Michael Jordan type. Not particularly charismatic, at least in terms of the way he interacted with people. Jeter's mm-hmm. never really someone you hear stories about. He's like, oh, he's such a funny guy, so fun. To be. No, he just kind of seems like... Well, he also, like, never did interviews. Like, uh, he never he opened never up. Interviews. We have no idea. It, the strangest thing to me will always be the way the press revered him, despite the fact that he treated, as far as I can tell... His attitude toward the media was, leave me the hell alone always. Yeah. He never wanted to talk. He never said anything about himself. He was just, he was the kind of polite you get from people who don't actually like you, but they understand that if they're, if they're rude to you, that you're going to get mad at them. That's Peyton Manning. 
Yeah, it's Peyton Manning. Although Peyton Manning at least just seems to have a more developed sense of humor in terms of just comic time. He has a sense of humor, but like he literally, I forgot, I think it's your old colleague, Gary Myers, who did a, the, the book on Brady and Manning. And they, like, he got Manning like once throughout the course of the yeah, whole book. I, I like the, I mean, I get the sense that Manning is not a guy who likes talking to the media. No. And I especially imagine that was, that got more so true uh, as his career both kind of fell apart toward the end and as all the uh, steroid rumors started to come out based on that Al Jazeera story. I, I have to imagine for him that was like, no, I'm not talking to you guys because you're, I'm just going to get asked about, about that and I'm not talking about that. Not to mention also the sexual harassment stuff from his time at Tennessee, which I also imagine he is extremely not eager to discuss in any circumstance. That'll never happen. No. And I also imagine that no NF, no football reporter who wants to maintain any level of access with Peyton Manning or any le- or any good NFL player will ever bother asking about that. But that's, that's a whole other thing about the industry. Uh, yeah. As to Jeter, I mean... I don't, I don't. I don't need to say congrats. No one needs to say congrats. He doesn't care in the first place. <laughs> That's kind of the thing. Jeter doesn't care. You get the sense that if it weren't for the fact that he had to be there, he wouldn't go. No. That he that he genuinely just wants to go up on that stage, be like, "Thanks for the plaque. You guys are cool. All right, peace." And that's it. He does not seem to be the kind of guy who enjoys these kinds of things, and which is fine for him. I just find it very funny though that you know this guy who is for so many for so many people especially both Yankees fans and also fans of our age who grew up watching him the entire time, this uh, North Star of baseball for so many people, and he's just like, just this totally bland, blank, like... Wait, hold on, he's not totally bland. Who can forget Yeah Jeets? Yeah Jeets. I would pay an ungodly <laughs> amount of money to learn if that's true. Like, un godly amount of money i just want yeah jeets to be a thing that happened in real life i think it did it also reminds me of my greatest regret my greatest regret as an editor is when i started si about a year or so after i started uh, i edited a piece by ben Ryder of of astros fame or infamy depending how you want to define it mm. uh, about jeter's foot injury that he had suffered i believe toward the end of the 2013 season or sometime in 2013 he had a well because his, his ankle and his, his ankles and his feet were, were just in constant dis- disrepair uh, toward in the last few years of his career and ben had talked to someone at one of the local new york sur- new york hospitals an orthopedic surgeon about exactly what we could expect in terms of his recovery and all that my greatest regret is that I didn't headline the piece, Yeah, Feats. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, I my really, God. really wish. I have held on to that joke in my head for seven years. Because it made me so happy when I thought of it, and I just knew I couldn't use it. John Taylor. Read <laughs> I, I don't... I... <laughs> Look, I've gotten some headlines in SI that I'm happy about. When when Anthony mm-hmm. Bennett got drafted, I went with number one stunner, which was a nice little always nice to be able to throw back to some late nineties rap. Similarly, mm-hmm. I, there was a that Blackhawks Bruins Stanley Cup from I believe eight years ago or so. Patrick Kane scored a winner, so we I got to go with Big Patty Kane. Uh mm. Tim Lincecum, one of his no hitters against the Padres, I headlined at Tim the Enchanter. So there's a there's a lot I miss of, there's a lot of work. I missed him once, too. There's a lot of good stuff you can do headline-wise, but I just knew that Yeah Feats was, was going to be a bridge too far. You're out of your mind. Um, or, or in, to, to, to give Jared Jeter one last honor, a mm. ground ball to his left too far. John Taylor after 5.30 is just a, a totally different person. And I haven't had a single drink today. I, I say that like by 6.30 on a Wednesday, I've normally had like four or five beers, and I just come on this thing, rip shit drunk, telling stories. <laughs> 
that's what you got to do. That's that's what you got to make a podcast series of is go on to go out to like winter meetings or something or get yourself credentialed mm-hmm. in some way or fashion or get to know some old ball players, liquor them up real good, and then just do an hour of old baseball player drunk story time. Mm. Basically, just recreate what winter meetings used to be like 15 years ago when when those old timers would just sit at the bar and just pound beers and whiskey and then just tell stories, or at least according to the, the older reporters I know for whom that used to be a thing, and just tell stories that were just obviously completely off the record and just full of ridiculous shit, but that they would just love telling anyway, because if there's any group of people who loves telling stories, old-time baseball guys. Old baseball guys love telling stories, and it is really fun listening to them tell those stories, because you, especially they once they reach a certain age of, like, once they get past like into their sixties, they don't give a shit anymore. Who knows what who knows what they're saying? Or you know, they don't care. You know, they're just like whatever. No one can touch me anymore. Like if you're like, I don't think we're going to be seeing like sixty-five-year-old Derek Jeter hanging out at a bar telling about telling people about how much he hated Jorge Posada or whatever. But I think like the the and it's it's basically goose gossip but without the racism. You know, so that's what you got to figure out: the goose gossip non-racist story time hour. There you go. John Taylor, we can read you and all the good folks at fangraphs.com. So go subscribe if you have not already done so. Follow you on Twitter at J.A. Taylor. And, uh, yeah, listen to you on the podcast feed. Not just my podcast. On on the Fangraphs podcast network. Should we call it a network? Yeah. Yeah, we got we got Effectively Wild, of course, with Ben and Meg. We've got Fangraphs Audio, which is a rotating cast of... Fangraphs writers and guests uh, from around the from around the league and the industry just talking baseball. And a lot of diarrhea teams. talk this week on Effectively Wild. <laughs> I'm glad I missed that. <laughs> That's what they opened so with. We have yeah. our, most, our, our newest podcast that came out this season is Kevin Goldstein's Chin Music, which is KG hosting uh, alongside a co-host. Usually as uh, the one I did last week with him, we had Julian McWilliams on talking about the Red Sox and the COVID outbreak. Ran through some baseball stories. Uh, he does that every week with a co-host and a special guest, so be sure to check that one out too. That is a that is a long one. That is a the episode we did was two and a half hours. That is a very freeform, just kind of rambling bit of baseball talk. But I, I encourage it if you're into something that's a little uh, left of center baseball wise. All right, John Taylor, talk to you soon. Yes, later, dude. All right, the Wednesday edition of the Chase Thomas podcast rolls along where I am now joined by someone who watched the Army Black Knights just come out of nowhere and just throttle Mr. Elliott's Georgia State Panthers, my home state. It's Sal Antonato. Sal, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm great, Chase. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. People might be wondering, why, why are we going in depth? on army on this podcast why 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 is sal here to talk about army guess what a my uh uncle is a retired colonel in the army um a lot of military in my family so i do have a vested interest in how the armed forces are doing but i also just think it's interesting because what's happening in army as of late it seems like sal is that with the navy falling army has risen navy obviously going down in just horrible fashion over the weekend and Army just keeping it going. Jeff Monken popping up in uh, head coaching opportunities across the country. Doesn't go anywhere. He's back for another year in Army. And uh, 
I don't know. I think this is one of the more surprising results from week one of the college football season because they were a dog to Georgia State. And not only did they cover, they, they whooped the Panthers. What happened? Yeah, I, I didn't really understand, quite frankly, uh, Chase, why they were an underdog. They're a nine-win team from last year. They're they're returning a ton of talent. Do they have these fifth- and sixth-year seniors coming back on the extra year to COVID? No, that's not how they do it at the academy. But they had eight or nine starters back from a defense that led the nation in yards allowed per game. Um, I didn't understand the line, to be honest with you. Um, I didn't really see it as a major upset. I didn't even really see it as an upset. I thought Army was going to be the better team. When you go into the game, right, and you see that um, Georgia State doesn't have their top receiver, Sam Pickney, you're like, okay, a little bit of advantage Army. Army's secondary is brings back all four of its starters from a secondary that was really, really good last year. And if you watch that game, um, they were able to get pressure on Quad Brown. They were able to maybe rush some throws, and the uh, secondary, without question, held up. I mean, I think they're the longest pass they gave up was 16 yards. I could be wrong, but 16 yards and to Quad Brown. So, I mean, they really uh, were able to get off to a good start. Defense turned the ball over first on the Georgia State's fourth play, and they just rolled. I mean, this is the Army team that last year, if they beat West Virginia in a bowl game, they probably finished ranked in the country. And, like I said, bringing all their talent back, bringing four starting quarterbacks that won games last year back, and a lot of talent on offense. Um, I think if you're an Army fan, you expected it. If you're the rest of the country, I don't know if you were particularly shocked because they've been pretty consistent under Jeff Munkin um, uh, in the last four or five years with that one hiccup in 2019. Yeah, I, I love triple option stats, but I love Army triple option stats, which is Jamel Jones and Christian Anderson both completed. Let me check my numbers here. One pass in this game for one touchdown. They both, they both, their only pass completion was a touchdown. What do you, what do you make of both of those those throws and what happened the there? Court, yeah, the quarterback rating is insane for us. <laughs> I saw a stat where I thought it was in the 400s. Is that even possible? I thought I saw the stat for the game was in the 400s. Um, you know what? It's something I was calling for before uh, the season opener is that, you know, these defenses are going to bunch up and put eight or nine guys on the line. And if you can complete some play-action passes, those are going to be huge plays. And the slotbacks that they have in Terrell Robinson and Brahe Murphy um, and A.J. Howard and Brandon Walters, those are guys that can definitely be effective in the passing game in that play-action scenario. And Christian Anderson put, um, put a pass on the dime to Terrell Robinson for 40 yards. And then toward the end of the game, I guess um, Georgia State was bunching it up. They called play-action. Jamel Jones hits Brahe Murphy pretty wide open for a 32-yard touchdown. That's something that Army uh, Brent Davis was saying before the Georgia State game that you know, you might see a couple things that we just weren't comfortable doing last year. And maybe that is putting the ball in the air. And uh, even uh, Tahir Tyler, too, his first pass of the game was on the money to Sean Eckert for 26 yards. You know, 26, 40, and 32, those are their completions on the uh, on the day against Georgia State. So. I love it. Um, a lot of dudes got carries in this game. Who stood out to you and who should we keep an eye on as the leader in this Army backfield? Well, they really spread it out. I was just uh, uh, charting uh, snap counts. And the fullbacks, they played five different fullbacks. The most uh, uh, fullback played was 22 plays. And Tyson Riley got the start for them. He's a sophomore. And people were a little bit um, shocked when he was at the top of the depth chart for this game because they have experience back in Jacoby Buchanan, Anthony Atkins, and Kate 
uh, Bernard, and people are like, how, Tyson Riley, he had a good preseason. He gets um, the first series. He scores his first career touchdown to end that uh, drive. And I think he's the guy to watch out for. Um, you know, um, Terrell Robinson, they didn't get him as much involved in the running game as maybe um, they could. But the passing game, he had that big play. He's electric. Uh, when he gets the ball in his hands, you know, big plays are going to happen. So those are the two guys. Um, really, their fullbacks are going to be their bread and butter two point um, to set up the offense. And, you know, they have great, like I said, Anthony Atkins, Jacoby Buchanan, Tyson Riley, Kate Bernard, um, Wilson Cato, who came in late in the game. Uh, those are all capable guys. And the quarterbacks, um, you know, Tyler Tyler's um, injuries, um, not uh, they don't expect serious when he gets the ball in his hand he can go so i mean it's they got a lot of weapons on this offense interesting um one of the things i'd also like to to figure out is the defensive side so they really really laid it to this georgia state team and this game was over at the half um what what's the most impressive aspect of what you've seen from the defense thus far and why jeff monken's defenses have just been pretty solid well, I think there's a couple things in this game that really uh, showed out to me. And first off, it's Andre Carter's performance. He's a junior. He's an outside linebacker. He's six seven. At one point, he was 265 pounds. They list him at 250. And that's not really a guy you see at the academies come off the edge on you. And on all three of his sacks, he just was barely even touched. I don't think I don't think an offensive lineman or a, a blocking back even got a hand on him. He was able to, uh, you know, use a swim move, use his speed off the end. Um, if Andre Carter plays like that, I'm not saying you're getting a three-sack game every game from Andre Carter, but if he can get some pressure on the quarterbacks, too, to help out the defensive line, I think he's the guy to definitely watch out for. Um, they had a freshman, Brian Burton, start inside linebacker uh, in place of Spencer Jones, who's a little banged up, and didn't seem like Brian Burton really missed a beat. He's a first college game, first college play. He's on the sidelines to make a tackle. Um Spencer Jones played most of the second half, but that's good showing uh, for Brian Burton. And I think that just, um, like I said, we t- I talked about the secondary at the beginning of the, of, of our, the podcast. I mean, just exceptional guys. Jabari Moore had a pick near the end zone that set up a touchdown late in the second quarter for Army. Um, the secondary, the safeties, Cedric Cunningham and Markel Broughton are excellent. And Julian McDuffie had eight tackles to lead the team at corner. So, I mean, their secondary is uh, really going to get a test this week against Western Kentucky. Um People might say, oh, Western Kentucky, yeah, they threw for seven touchdowns in their opener, but Army secondary is pretty uh, – it might be one of the best that they've had in a long time, and I think they'll be up for the challenge. New year, new faces. Who are you excited most about uh, the rest of college football learning about this season? As far as on their team or in college football in general? On their team. Um, yeah, I think that Brian Burton's the guy to watch out for. Mm. Um, th- there are – pretty experienced team right so a lot of these guys like i said i i had a stat i thought they had 38 guys who started the game last year that returned to their team this year Mm. um so they're really deep you're not going to see a lot of young guys like they only traveled three freshmen maybe four freshmen and a guy named uh a freshman slot back laquan benny got some uh like five snaps at the end of the game he might be a guy who could factor in later in the season they like to go deep at slot back he had a really good preseason. He, he looked good in scrimmages. I think he's a guy to watch. Um, and, again, I think Burton's the guy to watch. I'm, I'm trying to think of, like, a Carter, Carter's a guy coming on that kind of got some playing time last year, had a big game against Georgia State, was 
really his come, coming out game, and now it's building on that. Um, on the offense, I think there's um, Isaiah Austin is a wide receiver. They don't throw the ball often, and they don't throw a lot to wide receivers. But when they do, Isaiah Austin um, showed that last year he could be a, uh, a playmaker. He got hurt early in the season, never really got back up to full speed late. So he's a guy to watch out for in the offense. You say wide receiver, why in the triple option, right? But, I mean, if they're going to throw the ball um, – He's gonna. I think he's gonna be a fact. He's gonna play a factor some uh, at some point this season. I like it. I like it. Um, what are you looking out? Uh, looking out for this week? You got Western Kentucky on the docket. Um, what do you think is going to be the biggest difference from what we saw against Georgia State versus this week against Western Kentucky? Yeah, I I, I look at the way Western Kentucky. Uh, I think that Western Kentucky has a little bit more of dynamic passing game. They have. You know, their quarterback, uh, Houston a Baptist transfer, he's on the same page with, with a guy he played with at Houston Baptist. I think they're going to sp- try to spread the ball around a lot. And I think you're going to see pretty early. If this game gets into a shootout or a high-scoring affair, I don't think that's what Army wants. I think Army wants to do the same thing it did against Georgia State, right? Control the clock. 42 minutes of time of possession. They have Ooh, to oh, buddy. I mean, that that's, that's crazy, right? That's insane, right? And so if they can... And Army's offense did not have one three and out during the game. They had ten possessions. I think their their uh, low fewest plays they had was five. They've only punted twice. And Jeff Munkin hates the punt. Uh, Brent Davis, the offensive coordinator, hates the punt. They go. They went. Chase. They went ten for sixteen on third down. Three for three on fourth down. Those are pretty good percentages. So I mean, if they can keep moving the chains and keep um, the offense, their offense on the field, keep Western Kentucky's um, offense on the sidelines. I think that, you know, they they played really they have a really strong home record since they've been on this role with Jeff Munkin. I believe it's like 26 and 4 in their last 30 games at home. So, I don't know if uh, Western Kentucky necessarily um, you know, it, it, I think that they, they should roll and they should be successful in this game. On um, their last trip a couple years ago, they lost to Western Kentucky at Western Kentucky, kind of the same scenario. Georgia State two years ago. There's a lot of guys on this team who were sophomores or freshmen on that on those teams that lost. That you know, in the back of their minds, maybe they're going to be a little extra in these games because they want to prove that you know this team is this team is moving forward. And uh, I think they will. I think that they'll have a successful um, successful uh, performance against uh, Western Kentucky. What's the next game where you're like, okay, they could probably lose? Like, I, you have penciled in here that you're – this is the big one. Well, I mean, you look at their schedule. I mean, they do go to Ball State, right? But I, I don't I don't know. I, I think Wisconsin. I really do. Mm. I, think that, I think Wisconsin is the game. And now Wisconsin loses Penn State in the open, and you're like, well, you know, um, you thought they would be be facing maybe a poss- potentially a top-10 team in Wisconsin. Um, but their schedule gets – more difficult you know you have western kentucky yukon and miami your first miami ohio the first four games then you're going to go out out their next three are at all state at wisconsin and uh wake forest at home those are three games where you're going to see they're going to they're going to be attested and they you know under jeff Munkin, they the one thing missing from his resume is a win over a power a big time power five team they've been close at oklahoma close at Michigan, um, you know, played West Virginia pretty good in that bowl game last year, um, and now they get a chance at, you know, at Wisconsin. I think that's gonna that's a little barometer for me. You know, 
can they go to West? Can this team go to Wisconsin and defeat uh, you know Big Ten team that's usually at the top of the Big Ten? I think that's the game to watch. And if they win that game, you got Wake Forest next week. And normally, when you're going head to head against those Big Ten teams, you know they're very physical matchups. And how healthy are you going to be coming to next week? You're going to be at home against Wake Forest, but Wake Forest is still you know an ACC team who's going to have some athletes across the board that they're going to have to deal with. So. I think I'm, you and I might be the only two people, Sal, that are just like salivating at Wisconsin style versus Army on a college football Saturday to see how that unfolds. The battle, the battle of wills there, and uh, what that's comes, a marquee yeah. matchup, Chase. That's a marquee matchup right there. Yeah, I mean, I am, I'm all invested in that. Who, who wins? And what we saw from Wisconsin on Saturday was, oof. Um, but the running game looks solid again with the Clemson transfer running back. So. That should be interesting to to see what happens there. Uh, Sal, what can we check out from you across the internet this week? Yeah, I'm working right now on looking at, I'm doing some snap counts uh, for the game against Georgia State. Um, offensive and defensive breakdowns, you'll find them on uh, BlackKnightNation.com. And I'm going to be working on uh, previewing them. Uh, I'm looking to do something maybe on the secondary uh, of Army, maybe a Jabari Moore story or a Julian McDuffie story uh, heading into their game against Western Kentucky, just um, just on how those guys are really uh, are changing the game for Army by having some lockdown corners that are you know making it very difficult to <laughs> to complete passes. And so I'm, that's what you're going to. I'm going to have a. Uh, we'll do some pregame stuff. We'll do, we'll have a postgame podcast too after the Western Kentucky game and hoping, hoping to get, um, we do a podcast with four, uh, two, uh, two-time captain Steve Anderson. We called it the Old Grads Podcast. We're hoping to get him back on this week for his views on Army. He's a big, uh, you know, super Army, ultra Army fan. And uh, those podcasts are always fun to get because he, he played inside linebacker for the middle linebacker for Army so we can get the defensive perspective of, you know, what Nate Woody's doing for um you know, the Black Knights defense and why they're so successful. So that's some of the stuff. Uh, we're all over the place on those podcast platforms and uh, just trying to uh, cover the Black Knights as much as we can for for the, the fans. It's, it's, a, it's a worldwide uh, beat, so it's uh, always fun to uh, get those stories out to the uh, people who enjoy watching Army football. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, keep up the great work, sir. Thank you so much for making the time. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, we'll have to check back in again soon, Sal. Awesome, Chase. Thanks a lot. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.